4: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradio network.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk.
5: The internet is full of half truths and all out lies. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
6: uh, You know, uh, I guess you You started off by asking, you know, how I made the, the connection, uh, you know, between Invisible Man and, uh, uh, To my work and uh, probably the most the most central phrasing uh, for that was the one that was actually uh, made by uh, by the uh, by Lucius Brockway himself who is who is the old man who lives down in the basement or works down in the basement of Liberty Pates and he's the only one who knows how to make the formula work so that the white paint comes out just right, so that it's the right white, it's optic white. And what he explains um, to the narrator, he says, we are the machines inside the machine. Um, That there's this this vast machine that is working, it's producing this white paint, but down in the basement, uh, it's dependent upon um, the exploitation of uh, it says that he works as, a, as an engineer, but he's paid like a janitor, uh, so he's clearly in a situation where he has been uh, exploited, but he is the machine inside the machine, and that is, is the place that he's been given um, in the, at this Liberty, ironically called Liberty Paints factory. Um, again, Ellison creates a continuity of the power structure for all these places. We see that Liberty Paints is some place where Students from the college are sometimes sent to work, Uh, and there's a connection there uh, to Mr. Emerson, who is one of the trustees of the college that he sends or recommends for for students of the college to go there. Um, So this college, again, that is producing these students that are drilled uh, and coming out with eyes blind like robots are then being sent to this factory. Uh, Not clearly the kind of thing that they might have been promised. where they become or they be they are working within a system in which um, uh, black bodies or non-white bodies are being used as the machines within inside the machine
3: context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date friday June 1 2018 so I have been told this is our fifth study session on Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man we are picking up in the midway of chapter 9 so we're at the part uh, Mr. Emerson white man, kind of a feminine white man in my view is talking with the narrator Uh, he's gone to New York, been kicked Out of School by Dr. Bledsoe. He thinks he's got these letters of recommendation so that he can meet powerful whites, perhaps get a job, make some money, maybe go back to school. Uh, Mr. Emerson, this white man, is talking to him about maybe going to a different school and uh, kind of asking him a lot of questions to see, you know, what what his thinking is, what he wants to do. And the narrator doesn't really know what this guy's deal is. He's just kind of thinking he's a white man. Who is he? Uh, what is his position and and why is he asking me so many questions about school? Uh, so that's what we'll pick up at, uh, on uh, chapter nine this week. Uh, the audio segment that was Dr. Martin Kevorkian, uh, from his visit way back in August of 2010 on the cows. Uh, we discussed this book specifically, uh, for the duration of the broadcast. And in that snippet, you heard Dr. Kevorkian explaining, relating this book to his own work, uh, color monitors the black face of technology in america and specifically uh that sentence we are the machines in the machine uh from the great lucius brockway who we will meet this week what a name people should think about that i think the names that are given in this text uh, are very important uh lucius brockway who works at liberty paints That said, We will go ahead and get started. We're again picking up in chapter nine. I would encourage any listeners if you're confused or something doesn't quite make sense. If you have any questions, uh, please ask. Uh, You can email or dial in. This is one of the few times we are reading a text that I have read many times. Uh, I'm not sure other than Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. I don't think there are any books that we've covered in the book club that I have read more than invisible man and I don't even think I've read the bluest eyes many times as I've read uh, invisible man anyway feel free to ask questions uh, and we have resources not only uh, are there multiple programs within the cows archives uh, where we have talked with college professors about invisible man dr. Martin Kavorkian, professor Lena Hill uh, also I have asked them questions about this text, and every time they have been speedy, it seems that they both enjoy uh, discussing this text. I do as well, so I'm sure they would be willing to help out if you all have any questions or thoughts about the text as well. Uh, With that, we will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, Chapter 9.
1: Understand, he said calmly. It was presumptuous of me to even suggest another school. I guess one's college is really a kind of mother and father, a sacred matter. Yes, sir, that's it, I said in hurried agreement. His eyes narrowed. But now I must ask you an embarrassing question. Do you mind? Why, No, sir, I said nervously. I don't like to ask this, but it's quite necessary. He leaned forward with a pained frown. Tell me, did you read the letter which you brought to Mr. Emerson? This, he said, taking the letter from the table. Why, no, sir, it wasn't addressed to me, so naturally I wouldn't think of opening it. Of course not, I, I know you wouldn't he said, fluttering his hands and sitting erect. I'm sorry. And you must dismiss it like one of those (laughs) annoying personal questions you find so often nowadays on supposedly impersonal forms. I didn't believe him. Uh, But was it open, sir? Someone might have gone into my things. Oh, no, nothing like that. Please, forget the question. And tell me, please, what are your plans after graduation? I'm not sure, sir. I'd, I'd like to be asked to remain at the college as a teacher or as a member of the administrative staff. And... Well... Yes? And what else? Well... Uh, I guess I'd like to become Dr. Bledsoe's assistant. Oh, I see, he said, sitting back and forming his mouth into a thin-lipped circle. You're very ambitious. I guess I am, sir, but I'm willing to work hard. Ambition is a wonderful force, he said, but sometimes it can be blinding. On the other hand, it can make you successful, like my father. A new edge came into his voice, and he frowned and looked down at his hands, which were trembling. The only trouble with ambition is that it sometimes blinds one to realities. Tell me, how many of these letters do you have? I had about seven, sir, I replied, confused by his new turn. There seven? He was suddenly angry. Yes, sir, that was all he gave me. And how many of these gentlemen have you succeeded in seeing, may I ask? A sinking feeling came over me. I haven't seen any of them personally, sir. And this is your last letter? Uh, Yes, sir, it is, but I expect to hear from the others. They said, of course you will, and from all seven. They're all loyal Americans. There was unmistakable irony in his voice now, and I didn't know what to say. Seven, he repeated mysteriously. "'Oh, don't let me upset you,' he said with an elegant gesture of self-disgust. "'I had a difficult session with my analyst last evening, "'and the slightest thing is apt to set me off, "'like an alarm clock without control. "'Say,' he said, slapping his palms against his thighs, "'what on earth does that mean? "'Suddenly he was in a state. "'One side of his face had begun to twitch and swell. "'I watched him light a cigarette, thinking— What on earth is this all about? Some things are just too unjust for words, he said, expelling a plume of smoke, and too ambiguous for either speech or ideas. By the way, have you ever been to the club Calamus? I don't think I've ever heard of it, sir, I said. You haven't? "'It's very well known. Many of my Harlem friends go there. "'It's a rendezvous for writers, artists, and all kinds of celebrities. "'There's nothing like it in the city, "'and by some strange twist it has a truly continental flavor. "'I've never been to a nightclub, sir. "'I'll have to go there to see what it's like "'after I've started earning some money,' "'I said, hoping to bring the conversation back to the problem of jobs.' He looked at me with a jerk of his head, his face beginning to twitch again. I suppose I've been evading the issue again, as always. Look, he burst out impulsively, do you believe that two people, two strangers who have never seen one another before, can speak with utter frankness and sincerity, sir? Oh, damn. What I mean is... Do you believe it possible for us, the two of us, to throw off the mask of custom and manners that insulate man from man and converse in naked honesty and frankness? I don't know what you mean exactly, sir, I said. Are you sure? I, of course, of course, if I could only speak plainly. I'm confusing you. Such frankness just isn't possible because all our motives are impure. Forget what I just said. I'll try to put it this way and and remember this, please. My head spun. He was addressing me, leaning forward confidentially, as though he'd known me for years, and I remembered something my grandfather had said long ago. Don't let no white man tell you his business, cause after he tells you, he's liable to get shame he told it to you, and then he'll hate you. Fact is, he was hating you all the time. I want to try to reveal a part of reality that is most important to you, but I, I warn you, it's going to hurt. No. Let me finish, he said, touching my knee lightly and quickly removing his hand as I shifted my position. What I want to do is done very seldom, and to be honest, it wouldn't happen now if I hadn't sustained a series of impossible frustrations. You see, well, I'm a thwarted... Oh, damn, there I go again, thinking only of myself. We're both frustrated, understand? Both of us, and I want to help you. You mean you'll let me see Mr. Emerson, he frowned. Please don't seem so happy about it and don't leap to conclusions. I want to help, but there is a tyranny involved, a tyranny. My lungs tightened. Yes, that's a way of putting it, because to help you I must disillusion you. Oh, I don't think I mind, sir, once I see Mr. Emerson... It'll be up to me. All I want to do is speak to him. Speak to him, he said, getting quickly to his feet and mashing his cigarette into the tray with shaking fingers. No one speaks to him. He does the speaking. Suddenly he broke off. On second thought, perhaps you'd better leave me your address and I'll mail you Mr. Emerson's reply in the morning. He's really a very busy man. "'His whole manner had changed. "'But you said—' "'I stood up completely confused. "'Was he having fun with me? "'Couldn't you let me talk to him for just five minutes?' "'I pleaded. "'I'm sure I can convince him that I'm worthy of a job. "'And if there's someone who has tampered with my letter, "'I'll prove my identity. "'Dr. Bledsoe would "'Identity! "'My God! "'Who has any identity anymore anyway?' It isn't so perfectly simple. Look, he said with an anguished gesture. Will you trust me? Why, yes, sir, I trust you. He leaned forward. Look, he said, his face working violently. I was trying to tell you that I know many things about you. Not you personally, but fellows like you. Not much, either, but still more than the average. With us, it's still Jim and Huck Finn. A number of my friends are jazz musicians, and I've been around. I know the conditions under which you live. Why go back, fellow? There is so much you could do here, where there is more freedom. You won't find what you're looking for when you return anyway, because so much is involved that you can't possibly know. Please, don't misunderstand me. I don't say all this to impress you or to give myself some kind of "'Sadistic catharsis. Truly, I don't. "'But I do know this world you're trying to contact, "'all its virtues and all its unspeakables. "'Oh, yes, unspeakables. "'I'm afraid my father considers me one of the unspeakables. "'I'm Huckleberry, you see.' "'He laughed dryly as I tried to make sense of his ramblings. "'Huckleberry? Why did he keep talking about that kid's story?' I was puzzled and annoyed that he could talk to me this way because he stood between me and a job, the campus. But I only want a job, sir, I said. I only want to make enough money to return to my studies. Of course, but surely you suspect there is more to it than that. Aren't you curious about what lies behind the face of things? Yes, sir, but I'm mainly interested in a job. Of course, he said, but life isn't that simple. But I'm not bothered about all the other things, whatever they are, sir. They're not for me to interfere with. And I'll be satisfied to go back to college and remain there as long as they'll allow me to. But I want to help you do what is best, he said. What's best, mind you. Do you wish to do what's best for yourself? Why, yes, sir, I I suppose I do. Then forget about returning to the college. Go somewhere else. You mean leave? Yes. Forget it. But you said that you would help me. I did. I am. But what about seeing Mr. Emerson? Oh, God. Don't you see that it's best that you do not see him? Suddenly, I could not breathe. Then I was standing, gripping my briefcase. What have you got against me, I blurted. What did I ever do to you? You never intended to let me see him, even though I presented my letter of introduction. Why? Why? I'd never endanger your job. No, 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 of course not, he cried, getting to his feet. You've misunderstood me. You mustn't do that. God, there's too much misunderstanding. Please, don't think I'm trying to prevent you from seeing my, from seeing Mr. Emerson out of prejudice. Yes, sir, I do. I said angrily. I was sent here by a friend of his. You read the letter, but still you refused to let me see him. And now you're trying to get me to leave college. What kind of man are you anyway? What have you got against me? You, a northern white man. He looked, pained. I've done it badly, he said. But you must believe that I am trying to advise you what is best for you. He snatched off his glasses. But I know what's best for me, I said, or at least Dr. Bledsoe does. And if I can't see Mr. Emerson today, just tell me when I can, and I'll be here. He bit his lips and shut his eyes, shaking his head from side to side, as though fighting back a scream. I'm I'm sorry, really sorry that I started all of this, he said suddenly, calm. It was foolish of me to try to advise you, but please, you mustn't believe that I'm against you, or your race. I'm your friend. Some of the finest people I know are ni- Well, you see, Mr. Emerson is my father. Your father? My father, yes. Though I would have preferred it otherwise, but he is, and I could arrange for you to see him, but to be Utterly frank, I'm incapable of such cynicism. It would do you no good. But I'd like to take my chances, Mr. Emerson, sir. This is very important to me. My whole career depends upon it. But you have no chance, he said. But Dr. Bledsoe sent me here, I said, growing more and more excited. I must have a chance. Dr. Bledsoe, he said with distaste, he's like my he ought to be horsewhipped. Here, he said, sweeping up the letter and thrusting it, crackling toward me. I took it, looking into his eyes that burned back at me. Go on, read it, he cried excitedly. Go on! But I, I, I wasn't asking for this, I said. Read it! My dear Mr. Emerson, the bearer of this letter is a former student of ours. I say former because he shall never under any circumstances be enrolled as a student here again. Who who has been expelled for a most serious defection from our strictest rules of deportment? Due, however, to circumstances the nature of which I shall explain to you in person on the occasion of the next meeting of the board, it is to the best interests of the college that this young man have no knowledge of the finality of his expulsion for it is indeed his hope to return here to his classes in the fall. However, it is to the best interests of the great work which we are dedicated to perform that he continue undisturbed in these vain hopes while remaining as far as possible from our midst. This case represents, my dear Mr. Emerson, one of the rare, delicate instances in which one for whom we held great expectations has gone grievously astray and who, in his fall, threatens to upset certain delicate relationships between certain interested individuals and the school. Thus, while the bearer is no longer a member of our scholastic family, it is highly important that his severance with the college be executed as painlessly as possible. I beg you, sir, to help him continue in the direction of that promise which, like the horizon, recedes ever brightly and distantly beyond the hopeful traveler. Respectfully, I am your humble servant, A. Herbert Bledsoe. I raised my head. Twenty-five years seemed to have lapsed between his handing me the letter and my grasping its message. I could not believe it. Tried to read it again. I could not believe it. Yet I had a feeling that it all had happened before. I rubbed my eyes, and they felt sandy as though all the fluids had suddenly dried. I'm sorry, he said. I'm terribly sorry. What did I do? I I always tried to do... The right thing. That. You must tell me, he said. To what does he refer? I I don't know. I don't know. But you must have done something. I took a man for a drive, showed him into the golden day to help him when he became ill. I don't know. I told him falteringly of the visit to True Bloods and the trip to the golden day and of my expulsion, watching his mobile face reflecting his reaction to each detail. It's little enough, he said when I had finished. I don't understand the man. He's very complicated. I I only wanted to return and help, I said. You'll never return. You can't return now, he said. Don't you see? I'm terribly sorry, and yet I'm glad that I gave in to the impulse to speak to you. Forget it though that's advice which I've been unable to accept myself. It's still good advice. There's no point in blinding yourself to the truth. Don't blind yourself. I got up, dazed, and started toward the door. He came behind me, into the reception room, where the birds flamed in the cage, their squawks like screams in a nightmare. He stammered guiltily. Please, I... I I must ask you never to mention this conversation to anyone. No, I said. I I wouldn't mind, but my father would consider my revelation the most extreme treason. You're free of him now. I'm still his prisoner. You have been freed. Don't you understand? I've still my battle. He seemed near tears. I won't, I said. No one would believe me can't myself there must be some mistake there must be i opened the door look fellow he said this evening i'm having a party at the calamus would you like to join my guests it might help you no thank you sir i'll be all right perhaps you'd like to be my valet i looked at him no thank you sir i said Please, he said, I really want to help. Look, I happen to know of a possible job at Liberty Paints. My father has sent several fellows there. You should try, I shut the door. The elevator dropped me like a shot, and I went out and walked along the street. The sun was very bright now, and the people along the walk seemed far away. I stopped before a gray wall where high above me the headstones of a church graveyard arose like the tops of buildings, Across the street in the shade of an awning, a Shushan boy was dancing for pennies. I went on to the corner and got on a bus and went automatically to the rear. In the seat in front of me, a dark man in a Panama hat kept whistling a tune between his teeth. My mind flew in circles to Bledsoe, Emerson, and back again. There was no sense to be made of it. It it was a joke. Hell, it... It couldn't be a joke. Yes, it is a joke. Suddenly the bus jerked to a stop, and I heard myself humming the same tune that the man ahead was whistling, and the words came back. Oh well they picked poor Robin clean. Oh well, they picked poor Robin clean. Well they tied poor Robin to a stump. Lord they picked all the feathers round from Robin's rump. Well they picked poor Robin clean. Then I was on my feet, hurrying to the door, hearing the thin tissue paper against the teeth of a comb whistle following me outside at the next stop. I stood trembling at the curb, watching and half expecting to see the man leap from the door to follow me, whistling the old forgotten jingle about a bare, rumped robin. My mind seized upon the tune. I took the subway, and it still droned through my mind after I had reached my room at men's house and lay across the bed, What was the who, what, when, why, where of poor old Robin? What had he done, and who had tied him, and why had they plucked him, and why had we sung of his fate? (sighs) It was for a laugh, for a laugh. All the kids had laughed and laughed, and the droll tuba player of the old Elf's Club band had rendered its solo on his helical horn with comical flourishes and doleful phrasing. Boo 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 boo. Poor Robin Clean. A mock funeral dirge. But who was Robin? And for what had he been hurt and humiliated? Suddenly I lay shaking with anger. It was no good. I thought of young Emerson. What if he'd lied out of some ulterior motive of his own? Everyone seemed to have some plan for me, and beneath that, some more secret plan. What was young Emerson's plan, and why should it have included me? <sighs> Who was I, anyway? I tossed fitfully. Perhaps it was a test of my goodwill and faith. But that's a lie, I thought. It's a lie. And you know it's a lie. I had seen the letter, and it had practically ordered me killed by slow degrees. My dear Mr. Emerson, I said aloud, the robin bearing this letter is a former student. Please hope him to death and keep him running. Your most humble and obedient servant, A.H. Bledsoe. Sure. Sure. That's the way it was, I thought, a short, concise, verbal coup de grace straight to the nape of the neck. And Emerson would write in reply, Sure, dear Bled, have met Robin and shaved tail, signed Emerson. (laughs) I sat on the bed and laughed. They'd sent me to the rookery, all right. (laughs) I laughed and felt numb and weak, knowing that soon the pain would come and that no matter what happened to me, I'd never be the same. I felt numb, and I was laughing. When I stopped, gasping for breath, I decided that I would go back and kill Bledsoe. Yes, I thought. I owe it to the race. (laughs) And to myself, I'll kill him. (laughs) Ha ha! And the boldness of the idea and the anger behind it made me move with decision. I had to have a job, and I took what I hoped was the quickest means. I called the plant young Emerson had mentioned, and it worked. I was told to report the following morning. It happened so quickly and with such ease that for a moment I felt turned around. Had they planned it this way? But no, they wouldn't catch me again. This time, I had made the move. I could hardly get to sleep for dreaming of revenge. The plant was in Long Island, and I crossed a bridge in the fog to get there, and came down in a stream of workers. Ahead of me, a huge electric sign announced its message through the drifting strands of fog. Keep America Pure with Liberty paints. Flags were fluttering in the breeze from each of a maze of buildings below the sign, and for a moment it was like watching some vast patriotic ceremony from a distance. But no shots were fired and no bugles sounded. I hurried ahead with the others through the fog. I was worried, since I had used Emerson's name without his permission, but when I found my way to the personnel office, it worked like magic. I was interviewed by a little droopy-eyed man named Mr. McDuffie and sent to work for a Mr. Kimbrough. An office boy came along to direct me. If Kimbrough needs him, McDuffie told the boy, come back and have his name entered on the shipping department's payroll. It's tremendous, I said as we left the building. It it looks like a a small city. It's big, all right, he said. We're one of the biggest outfits in the business. Make a lot of paint for the government. We entered one of the buildings now and started down a pure white hall. You better leave your things in the locker room, he said, opening a door through which I saw a room with low wooden benches and rows of green lockers. There were keys in several of the locks, and he selected one for me. Put your stuff in there and, and take the key, he said. Dressing, I felt nervous. He sprawled with one foot on a bench, watching me closely as he chewed on a match stem. Did he suspect that Emerson hadn't sent me? They had a a new racket around here, he said, twirling the match between his finger and thumb. There was a note of insinuation in his voice, and I looked up from tying my shoe, breathing with conscious evenness. What kind of racket, I said. Oh, you know, the wise guys firing the regular guys and putting on you colored college boys. Pretty smart, he said. That way they don't have to pay union wages. How did you know I went to college, I said. Oh, There's about six of you guys out here already, some up in the testing lab. Everybody knows about that. But I had no idea that was why I was hired, I said. Forget it, Mac, he said. It's not your fault. You new guys don't know the score, just like the union says. It's the wise guys in the office. They're the ones who make the scabs out of you. Hey, we better hurry. We entered a long, shed-like room in which I saw a series of Overhead doors along one side and a row of small offices on the other. I followed the boy down an aisle between endless cans, buckets, and drums labeled with the company's trademark a screaming eagle. The paint was stacked in neatly pyramided lots along the concrete floor. Then, starting into one of the offices, the boy stopped short and grinned. Listen to that. Someone inside the office was swearing violently over the telephone. Who's that, I asked. He grinned. Your boss, the terrible Mr. Kimbrough. We call him Colonel, but don't let him catch you. I didn't like it. The voice was raving about some failure of the laboratory, and I felt a swift uneasiness. I didn't like the idea of starting to work for a man who was in such a nasty mood. Perhaps he was angry at one of the men from the school, and that wouldn't make him feel too friendly toward me. Let's go in, the boy said. I've got to get back. As we entered, the man slammed down the phone and picked up some papers. Miss McDuffie wants to know if you can use this new man, the boy said. Damn right, I can use him. The voice trailed off, the eyes above the stiff military mustache going hard. Well, can you use him, the boy said. I I gotta go make out his card. Okay, the man said finally. I can use him, I gotta. What's his name? The boy read my name off a card. All right, he said, you go right to work. And you, he said to the boy, get the hell out of here before I give you a chance to earn some of the money wasted on you every payday. Ah, go on, you slave driver, the boy said, dashing from the room. Reddening, Kimbrough turned to me. Come along, let's get going. I followed him into the long room where the lots of paint were stacked along the floor beneath numbered markers that hung from the ceiling. Toward the rear, I could see two men unloading heavy buckets from a truck, stacking them neatly, on a low loading platform. Now get this straight, Kimbrough said gruffly. This is a busy department, and I don't have time to repeat things. You have to follow instructions, and you're going to be doing things you don't understand, so get your orders the first time and get them right. I won't have time to stop and explain everything. You have to catch on by doing exactly what I tell you. You got that? I nodded, noting his voice became louder when the men across the floor stopped to listen. All right, he said, picking up several tools. Now, come over here. He's Kimbro, one of the men said. I watched him kneel and open one of the buckets, stirring a milky brown substance. A nauseating stench arose. I wanted to step away, but he stirred it vigorously until it became glossy white, holding the spatula like a delicate instrument and studying the paint as it laced off the blade back into the bucket. Kimbro frowned. Damn those laboratory blubberheads to hell. There's got to be dope put in every single son of a bitchin' bucket. And that's what you're gonna do. And it's gotta be put in so it can be trucked out of here before 11.30. He handed me a white enamel graduate and what looked like a battery hydrometer. The idea is to open each bucket and put in ten drops of this stuff, he said. Then you stir it till it disappears. After it's mixed, you take this brush and paint out a sample on one of these. He produced a number of small rectangular boards and a small brush from his jacket pocket. You understand? Uh, Yes, sir. But when I looked into the white graduate, I hesitated. The liquid inside was dead black. Was he trying to kid me? What's wrong? I don't know, sir. I I mean, well, I don't want to start by asking a lot of stupid questions, but do you know what's in this graduate? His eyes snapped. You're damn right I know, he said. You just do what you're told. I I just wanted to make sure, sir, I said. Look, he said, drawing in his breath with an exaggerated show of patience. Take the dropper and fill it full. Go on, do it. I filled it. Now, measure ten drops into the paint. There, that's it. Not too goddamn fast. Now, you want no more than ten and no less. Slowly, I measured the glistening black drops, seeing them settle upon the surface and become blacker still, spreading suddenly out to the edges. That's it. That's all you have to do, he said. Never mind how it looks, that's my worry. You just do what you're told and don't try to think about it. When you've done five or six buckets, come back and see if the samples are dry. And hurry, we've got to get this batch back off to Washington by 11.30. I worked fast, but carefully. With a man like this Kimbrough, the least thing done incorrectly would cause trouble. So I wasn't supposed to think to hell with him. Just a flunky, a northern redneck, a Yankee cracker. I mixed the paint thoroughly, then brushed it smoothly on one of the pieces of board, careful that the brushstrokes were uniform. Struggling to remove an especially difficult cover, I wondered if the same Liberty paint was used on the campus or if this optic white was something made exclusively for the government. Perhaps it was of a better quality, a special mix. And in my mind, I could see the brightly trimmed and freshly decorated campus buildings as they appeared on spring mornings after the fall painting and the light winter snows, with a cloud riding over and a a darting bird above, framed by the trees and encircling vines. The buildings had always seemed more impressive because they were the only buildings to receive regular paintings. Usually the nearby houses and cabins were left untouched to become the dull-grained gray of weathered wood, and I remembered how the splinters in some of the boards were raised from the grain by the wind the sun and the rain, until the clappards shone with a satiny, silvery, silverfish sheen, like Trueblood's cabin or the golden day. The golden day had once been painted white. Now its paint was flaking away with the years, the scratch of a finger being enough to send it showering down. (sighs) Damn that golden day. But it was strange how life connected up, because I had carried Mr. Norton... To the old, run-down building with rotting paint. <laughs> I was here. If I thought one could slow down his heartbeats and memory to the tempo of the black drops falling so slowly into the bucket, yet reacting so swiftly, it would seem like a a sequence in a feverish dream. I was so deep in reverie that I failed to hear Kimbrough approach. How's it coming? He said, standing with hands on his hips. All, all right, sir. Let's see he said, selecting a sample and running his thumb across the board. That's it, as white as George Washington's Sunday go-to-meet-and-wig, and as sound as the almighty dollar. That's paint, he said proudly. That's paint that'll cover just about anything. He looked as though I had expressed a doubt, and I hurried to say, wait, it's certainly white, all right. White! It's the purest white that can be found. Nobody makes a paint any whiter. This batch right here is heading for a national monument. I see, I said, quite impressed. He looked at his watch. Just keep it up, he said. If I don't hurry, I'll be late for the production conference. Say, you're nearly out of dope. You better go in the tank room and refill it. And don't waste any time. I've got to go. He shot away without telling me where the tank room was. It was easy to find, but I wasn't prepared for so many tanks. There were seven, each with a puzzling code stenciled on it. It's just like Kimbro not to tell me, I thought. You can't trust any of them. Well, it doesn't matter. I'll pick the tank from the contents of the drip cans hanging from the spigots. But while the first five tanks contained clear liquids that smelled like turpentine, the last two both contained something black like the dope, but with different codes so I had to make a choice. Selecting the tank with the drip can that smelled most like the dope, I filled the graduate, congratulating myself for not having to waste time until Kimbrough returned. The work went faster now, the mixing easier. The pigment and heavy oils came free of the bottom much quicker, and when Kimbrough returned, I was going at top speed. How many have you finished, he asked. About uh, 75, I think, sir. I I lost count. That's pretty good, but not fast enough. They've been putting pressure on me to get this stuff out. Here, I'll give you a hand. They must have given him hell, I thought, as he got grunting to his knees and began removing covers from the buckets. But he had hardly started when he was called away. When he left, I took a look at the last bunch of samples and got a shock. Instead of the smooth, hard surface of the first, they were covered with a, a sticky goo through which I could see the grain of the wood. What on earth had happened? The paint was not as white and glossy as before. It had a, a gray tinge. I stirred it vigorously and grabbed a rag, wiping each of the boards clean, then made a new sample of each bucket. I grew panicky lest Kimbro returned before I finished. Working feverishly, I made it, but since the paint required a few minutes to dry, I picked up two finished buckets and started lugging them over to the loading platform. I dropped them with a thump as the voice rang out behind me. It was Kimbrough. What the hell, he yelled, smearing his finger over one of the samples. This stuff's still wet. I didn't know what to say. He snatched up several of the later samples, smearing them and letting out a groan. Of all the things to happen to me, first they take away all my good men and then they send me you. What'd you do to it? Uh, Nothing, sir. I followed your directions, I said defensively. I watched him peer into the graduate, lifting the dropper and sniffing it, his face glowing with exasperation. Who the hell gave you this? No one. Then where'd you get it? From the tank room. Suddenly, he dashed for the tank room, sloshing the liquid as he ran. I thought, oh, hell. And before I could follow, he burst out of the door in a frenzy. You took the wrong tank, he shouted. What the hell, you trying to sabotage the company? That stuff wouldn't work in a million years. It's remover, concentrated remover. Don't you know the difference? No, sir, I don't. It looked the same to me. I didn't know what I was using, and you didn't tell me. I was trying to save time and took what I thought was right. But why this one? Because it smelled the same, I began. Smelled, he roared. God damn it! Don't you know you can't smell shit around all those fumes? Come on to my office! I was torn between protesting and pleading for fairness. It was not all my fault, and I didn't want the blame, but I did wish to finish out the day. Throbbing with anger, I followed, listening as he called personnel. Hello? Mac? Mac, this is Kimbrough. It's about this fellow you sent me this morning. I'm sending him in to pick up his pay. What did he do? He doesn't satisfy me, that's what. I don't like his work. So the old man has to have a report. So what? Make one. Tell him, God damn it, this fellow ruined a batch of government stuff. Hey? No, don't tell him that. Listen, Mac, you got anyone else out there? Ah, okay, forget it He crashed down the phone and swung toward me I swear, I don't know why they hire you fellas You just don't belong in a paint plant Come on Bewildered, I followed him into the tank room Yearning to quit and tell him to go to hell But I needed the money And even though this was the North, I wasn't ready to fight unless I had to Here, I'd be one against how many I watched him empty the graduate back into the tank and noted carefully when he went to another marked SKA369TY and refilled it. Next time, I would know. Now, for God's sake, he said, handing me the graduate, be careful and try to do the job right. And if you don't know what to do, ask somebody. I'll be in my office. I returned to the buckets, my emotions whirling. Kimbrough had forgotten to say what was to be done with the spoiled paint, Seeing it there, I was suddenly seized by an angry impulse, and filling the dropper with fresh dope, I stirred ten drops into each bucket and pressed home the covers. Let the government worry about that, I thought, and started to work on the unopened buckets. I stirred until my arm ached and painted the samples as smoothly as I could, becoming more skillful as I went along. When Kimbrough came down the floor and watched, I glanced up silently and continued stirring. How is it? he said, frowning. I don't know, I said, picking up a sample and hesitating. Well? It's nothing, a speck of dirt, I said. Standing and holding out the sample, a tightness growing within me. Holding it close to his face, he ran his fingers over the surface and squinted at the texture. That's more like it, he said. That's the way it ought to be. I watched with a sense of unbelief as he rubbed his thumb over the sample, handed it back, and left without a further word. I looked at the painted slab. It appeared the same. A gray tinge glowed through the whiteness, and Kimbrough had failed to detect it. I stared for about a minute, wondering if I were seeing things, inspected another and another. All were the same, a brilliant white diffused with gray. I closed my eyes for a moment and looked again, and still no change. Well, I thought, as long as he's satisfied. But I had a feeling that something had gone wrong, something far more important than the paint, that either I had played a trick on Kimbrough or he, like the trustees and Bledsoe, was playing one on me. When the truck backed up to the platform, I was pressing the cover on the last bucket, and there stood Kimbrough above me. Let's see your samples, he said. I reached, trying to select the whitest, as the blue-shirted truckman climbed through the loading door. How about it, Kimbrough, one of them said. Can we get started? Just a minute now, he said, studying the sample. Just a minute. I watched him nervously, waiting for him to throw a fit over the gray tinge and hating myself for feeling nervous and afraid. What would I say? But now he was turning to the truckman. All right, boys, get the hell out of here. And you, he said to me, go see McDuffie. You're all through. I stood there, staring at the back of his head, at the pink neck beneath the cloth cap and the iron gray hair. So... He'd let me stay, only to finish the mixing. I turned away. There was nothing that I could do. I cursed him all the way to the personnel office. Should I write the owners about what had happened? Perhaps they didn't know that Kimber was having so much to do with the quality of the paint. Perhaps that is how things are done here, I thought. Perhaps the real quality of the paint is always determined by the man who ships it rather than by those who mix it. <sighs> to hell with the whole thing. I'll find another job. But I wasn't fired. McDuffie sent me to the basement of building number two on a new assignment. When you get down there, just tell Brockway that Mr. Sparling insists that he have an assistant. You do whatever he tells you. What is that name again, sir, I said? Lucius Brockway, he said. He's in charge. It was a deep basement, three levels underground. I pushed upon a Heavy metal door marked danger and descended into a noisy, dimly lit room. There was something familiar about the fumes that filled the air, and I had just thought pine when a high-pitched negro voice rang out above the machine sounds. Who are you looking for down here? I- I'm looking for the man in charge, I called, straining to locate the voice. You talking to him? What you want? The man who moved out of the shadow and looked at me sullenly was small, wiry, and very natty in his dirty overalls. And as I approached him, I saw his drawn face and the cottony white hair showing beneath his tight, striped engineer's cap. His manner puzzled me. I couldn't tell whether he felt guilty about something himself or thought I had committed some crime. I came closer, staring. He was barely five feet tall. His overalls looking now as though he had been dipped in pitch. All right, he said. I'm a busy man. What you want? I'm looking for Lucius, I said. He frowned. That's me. And don't come calling me by my first name. To you and all like you, I'm Mr. Brockway. You? I began. Yeah, me. Who sent you down here anyway? The the personnel office, I said. I was told to tell you that Mr. Sparlin said for you to be given an assistant. Assistant, he said. I don't need no damn assistant. Old man Sparlin must think I'm getting old as him. Here I've been running things by myself all these years, and now they keep trying to send me some assistant. You get on back up there and tell them that when I want an assistant, I'll ask for one. I was so disgusted to find such a man in charge that I turned without a word and started back up the stairs. First Kimbrough, I thought, and now this old, Hey, wait a minute. I turned, seeing him beckon. Come on back here a minute he called, his voice cutting sharply through the roar of the furnaces. I went back, seeing him remove a white cloth from his hip pocket and wipe the glass face of a pressure gauge, then bend close to squint at the position of the needle. Here, he said, straightening and handing me the cloth. You can stay till I get in touch with the old man. These here have to be kept clean so I can see how much pressure I'm getting. I took the cloth without a word and began rubbing the glasses he watched me critically what's your name he said i told him shouting it in the roar of the furnaces wait a minute he called going over and turning a valve in an intricate network of pipes i heard the noise rise to a higher almost hysterical pitch somehow making it possible to hear without yelling our voices moving blurrily underneath returning he looked at me sharply his withered face an animated black walnut with shrewd, reddish eyes. This here is the first time they ever send me anybody like you, he said as though puzzled. That's how come I call you back. Usually they sends down some young white fellow who thinks he's gonna watch me a few days and ask me a heap of questions and then take over. Some folks is too damn simple to even talk about he said, grimacing and waving his hand in a violent gesture of dismissal. "'You an engineer?' he said, looking quickly at me. "'An engineer?' "'Yeah, that's what I asked you,' he said challengingly. "'Why, no, sir, I'm no engineer.' "'You sure?' "'Of course I'm sure. "'Why shouldn't I be?' "'He seemed to relax. "'That's all right, then. "'I have to watch them personnel fellows.' One of them thinks he's going to get me out of here when he ought to know by now he's wasting his time. Lucius Brockway not only intends to protect himself, he knows how to do it. Everybody knows I've been here since there's been a here. Even helped dig the first foundation. The old man hired me, nobody else, and by God, it'll take the old man to fire me. I rubbed away at the gauges, wondering what had brought on this outburst, and was somewhat relieved that he seemed to hold nothing against me personally. Where did you go to school, he said, I told him. Is that so? What you learning down there? Just general subjects, a regular college course, I said. Mechanics? Oh, no, nothing like that, just a liberal arts course, no trades. Is that so? He said doubtfully. Then suddenly, How much pressure I got on that gauge right there? Which, you see it, he pointed. That one right there. I looked, calling off. uh, Forty-three and two-tenths pounds. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's right. He squinted at the gauge and back at me. Where you learn to read a gauge so good? In my high school physics class. It's like... Reading a clock. They teach you that in high school? That's right. Well, that's going to be one of your jobs. These here gauges have to be checked every 15 minutes. You ought to be able to do that. I think I can, I said. Some can, some can't. By the way, who hired you? Uh, Mr. McDuffie, I said, wondering why all the questions. Yeah. Then where you been all morning? I was working over in building number one. <laughs> that there's a heap of building. Whereabouts? For Mr. Kimbrough. I see. I see. I know they oughtn't to be hiring anybody this late in the day. What, Kimbrough, have you doing? Putting dope in some paint that went bad, I said, wearily annoyed with all the questions. His lips shot out belligerently. What paint went bad? I think it was some for the government, he cocked his head. I wonder how come nobody said nothing to me about it, he said thoughtfully. Was it in buckets or them little bitty cans? Uh, Buckets. Oh, that ain't so bad. Them little ones is a heap of work. He gave a high, dry laugh. (laughs) (laughs) How you hear about this job, he snapped suddenly, as though trying to catch me off guard. Look, I said slowly, a man I know told me about the job. McDuffie hired me. I worked this morning for Mr. Kimbrough, and I was sent to you by Mr. McDuffie. His face tightened. You friends to one of those colored fellows? Who? Up in the lab. No, I said. Anything else you want to know? He gave me a long, suspicious look and spat upon a hot pipe, causing it to steam furiously. I watched him remove a heavy engineer's watch from his breast pocket and squint at the dial importantly, then turned to check it with an electric clock that glowed from the wall. You keep on wiping them gauges, he said. I got to look at my soup. And look here, he pointed to one of the gauges. I want you to keep a specially sharp eye on this here, son of a bitch. The last couple of days he's developed a habit of building up too fast. Causes me a heap of trouble. You see him getting past 75, you yell and yell loud. He went back into the shadows and I saw a shaft of brightness mark the opening of a door. Running the rag over a gauge, I wondered how an apparently uneducated old man could gain such a responsible job. He certainly didn't sound like an engineer. Yet, he alone was on duty. And you could never be sure for at home an old man employed as a janitor at the waterworks was the only one who knew the location of all the water mains. He had been employed at the beginning before any records were kept and actually functioned as an engineer, though he drew a janitor's pay. Perhaps this old Brockway was protecting himself from something. After all, there was antagonism to our being employed, Maybe he was dissimulating like some of the teachers at the college who, to avoid trouble when driving through the small surrounding towns, wore chauffeur caps and pretended that their cars belonged to white men. But why was he pretending with me? And what was his job? I looked around me. It was not just an engine room, I knew, for I had been in several, the last at college. It was something more... For one thing, the furnaces were made differently, and the flames that flared through the cracks of the fire chambers were too intense and too blue. And there were the odors. No, he was making something down here. Something that had to do with paint, and probably something too filthy and dangerous for white men to be willing to do even for money. It was not paint, because I'd been told that the paint was made on the floors above where passing through I had seen men in splattered aprons working over large vats filled with whirling pigment. One thing was certain. I had to be careful with this crazy Brockway. He didn't like my being here. And there he was, entering the room now from the stairs. How's it going? He asked. All right, I said. Only it seems to have gotten louder. Oh, it's it gets pretty loud down here, all right. This here's the uproar department, <laughs> and I'm in charge. Did she go over the mark? No, it's holding steady, I said. That's good. I've been having plenty of trouble with it lately. Have to bust it down and give it a good going over as soon as I can get the tank clear. Perhaps he is the engineer, I thought, watching him inspect the gauges and go to another part of the room to adjust a series of valves. Then he went and said a few words into a wall phone and called me, pointing to the valves. I'm fixing to shoot it to him upstairs, he said gravely. When I give you the signal, I want you to turn him wide open. And when I give you the second signal, I want you to close him up again. Start with this here red one and work right straight across. I took my position and waited as he took a stand near the gauge. Let her go, he called. I opened the valves, hearing the sound of liquids rushing through the huge pipes. At the sound of a buzzer, I looked up. Start closing it, yell. Yeah? What are you looking at? Close them valves. What's wrong with you, he asked when the last valve was closed. I expected you to call. I said I'd signal you. Can't you tell the difference between a signal and a call? Hell, I buzzed you. You don't want to do that no more when I buzz you I want you to do something and do it quick you're the boss I said sarcastically you mighty right I'm the boss and don't forget it now come on back here we got work to do we came to a strange looking machine consisting of a huge set of gears connecting to a series of drum like rollers Brockway took a shovel and scooped up a load of brown crystals from a pile on the floor, pitching them skillfully into a receptacle on top of the machine. Grab a scoop and let's get going, he ordered briskly. You ever done this before? He asked as I scooped into the pile. It's been a long time, I said. What is this material? He stopped shoveling and gave me a long, black stare, then returned to the pile, his scoop ringing on the floor. You'll have to remember not to ask this suspicious old bastard any questions, I thought, scooping into the brown pile. Soon I was perspiring freely. My hands were sore and I began to tire. Brockway watched me out of the corner of his eye, snickering noiselessly. You don't want to overwork yourself, young fella, he said blandly. I'll get used to it, I said, scooping up a heavy load. Oh, show, show, he said. Show but you better take a rest when you get tired. I didn't stop. I piled on the material until he said, That there's the scoop we've been trying to find. That's what we want. You better stand back a little, because I'm fixing to start her up. I backed away, watching him go over and push a switch. Shuddering into motion, the machine gave a sudden scream like a circular saw and sent a tattoo of sharp crystals against my face. I moved clumsily away, seeing Brockway grin like a dried prune, Then, with the dying hum of the furiously whirling drums, I heard the grains sifting lazily in the sudden stillness, sliding sand-like down the chute into the pot underneath. I watched him go over and open a valve. A sharp new smell of oil arose. Now she's all set to cook down. All we got to do is put the fire to her, he said, pressing a button on something that looked like the burner of an oil furnace. There was an angry hum followed by a slight explosion that caused something to rattle. I could hear a low roaring begin. Know what that's going to be when it's cooked? No, sir, I said. Well, that's going to be the guts, what they call the vehicle of the paint. At least it will be by the time I get through putting other stuff with it. But I thought the paint was made upstairs. Nah, they just mixes in the color, make it look pretty, right "'Down here is where the real paint is made. "'Without what I do, they couldn't do nothing. "'They'd be making bricks without straw, "'and not only do I make up the base, "'I fixes the varnishes and lots of the oils, too.' "'So that's it,' I said. "'I was wondering what you did down here. "'A whole lot of folks wonders about that without getting anywhere. "'But as I was saying,' can't a single doggone drop of paint move out of the factory less than it comes through Lucius Brockway's hands. How long you been doing this? Long enough to know what I'm doing, he said. And I learned it without all that education that them what's been sent down here is supposed to have. I learned it by doing it. Them personnel fellas don't want to face the facts, but Liberty Paints wouldn't be worth a plug nickel if they didn't have me here to see that it got a good, strong base. Old oh, man Sparling know it, though. I can't stop laughing over the time when I was down with a touch of pneumonia <laughs> and they put on one of them so-called engineers to puttin' around down here. Why they started to having so much paint go bad, they didn't know what to do. Paint was bleeding and wrinkling, wouldn't cover or nothing. (laughs) You know, a man could make himself all kinds of money if he found out what makes paint bleed. Anyway, everything was going bad. Then word got to me that they done put that fellow in my place. And when I got well, I wouldn't come back. Here I've been with him so long and loyal and everything. Shucks. I just sent him word that Lucius Brockway was retiring. <laughs> Next thing you know, here come the old man. He's so old himself. His chauffeur has to help him up them steep stairs in my place. Come in a-puffin' and a blowing, says, <gasps> Lucius, what is here I, I hear about you retiring? <laughs> Well, sir, Mr. Sparling, sir, I says, I've been pretty sick, as you well know, and I'm getting kind of along in my years, as you well know, and I hear that this here Italian fellow you got in my place is doing so good, I thought I might as well take it easy round the house. Why, you'd a thought I'd have done cursed him or something. What kind of talk is that from you, Lucius Brockway, he say, taking it easy round the house when, when we need you out to the plant? Don't you know the quickest way to die is to retire? Why, that fellow out at the plant don't know a thing about those furnaces. I'm so worried about what he's going to do that he's liable to blow up the plant or something that I took out some extra insurance. "'He can't do your job,' he said. "'He don't have the touch. "'We haven't put out a first-class batch of paint "'since you've been gone.' "'Now, that was the old man himself,' "'Lucius Brockway said. "'So what happened?' I said. "'What you mean, what happened?' He said, looking as though it were the most unreasonable question in the world. Shucks, a few days later, the old man had me back down here in full control. That engineer got so mad when he found out he had to take orders from me, he quit the next day. <laughs> he spat on the floor and laughed. <laughs> He was a fool, that's what. A fool He wanted to boss me and I know more about this basement than anybody, boilers and everything. I help lay the pipes and everything and and what I mean is I knows the location of each and every pipe and switch and cable and wire and everything else. Both in the floors and in the walls and out in the yard. Yes, sir. And what's more, I got it in my head so good I can trace it out on paper down to the last nut and bolt. And ain't never been to nobody's engineering school, neither. Ain't even passed by one, as far as I know. Now, what do you think about that? I think it's remarkable, I said, thinking I don't like this old man. Oh, I wouldn't call it that, he said. It's just that I've been round here so long. I've been studying this machinery for over 25 years. Show. Sure. And that fellow thinking because he'd been to some school and learned how to read a blueprint and how to fire a boiler, he knows more about this plant than Lucius Brockway. That fool couldn't make no engineer because he can't see what's staring him straight in the face. Say, you forgetting to watch them gauges. I heard over finding all the needles steady. They're okay, I called. All right, but I'm warning you to keep an eye on them. You can't forget down here, because if you do, you're liable to blow up something. They got all this machinery, but that ain't everything. We, the machines, inside the
3: machine. Context of white supremacy. So we are still in chapter 10. We're about at the halfway point. Uh, that's where we'll pick up at in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man for audio segment, number 2 folks listening in if you have questions comments observations and would like to participate the number to dial 641 715 3640 the code 564943 pound press star one if you would like to participate number again 641 715 3640 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate if you want to join the discussion and you do not want to use your phone, you can use the free Vope line that is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tinytiny.cc forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tinytiny.cc forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, look on the left of the page, and you will see a link for the free Vope line. Click that link. It will open a small window on your screen. The first line, it is a drop-down menu. Select the number I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for a code. That code again, five six four nine four three final line it will ask for a name you can put in a real name nickname you can press random keys whatever you're comfortable with once you get all that information entered click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the live broadcast and you will be able to hear our discussion if you want to participate it is the same procedure press star six one you'll see the dial pad on your screen uh once you press star six one I'll see your hand on the switchboard and we will add you to the line. Right on. Uh, With that, uh, if folks have any thoughts, uh, I think I did mention if people have any thoughts about uh, Lucius Brockway's name, significance, importance uh, of his name. I think I have a few other thoughts as we proceed, but I'll get the folks who dialed in with a hand up first. Uh, If you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, Greetings, Jay, in St. Louis. Uh,
4: Yeah, this this book is going really good, uh, and I took some notes on the chapter. Um, When he was talking with Mr. Emerson, I thought it was very interesting uh, that he he said that uh, ambition can blind one from reality. Uh, I I thought that was a really cool line. And then the grandfather came up again. he, He said, be very careful of of white people who tell you their problems and they come to hate you and they were hating you all along. And it really made me think about white liberals. Um, I I won't expand on it, but it just just made me think about white liberals and their tendency to try to befriend you and through an individual really interface with the entire race of people. Um, I thought it was interesting that Mr. Emerson, the son of Mr. Emerson, he used the word tyranny when he was... Rambling about, um, and that's a word I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, And then I thought also that the white liberal, that's supposedly the friend of blacks, um, their their fathers, their grandmothers, their mothers, their daughters, their sisters, are these car carrying white supremacists. And so it's just, I think it's just interesting to keep in mind when we're talking to white liberals, we're still interfacing with the white supremacists that they go home and sleep with every day. Um, um, Let's see. I thought it was interesting that uh, the main character was left out of knowledge. It made me think about how information is really stratified and not really spread equally, Um, and just like he was given no type of information about his own fate. And I think non-white people are in that situation so much where we're just we're walking around with all of these false ideas about the world we live in. Um, and I thought it was interesting. He said he was numb and he was dreaming of revenge on Bledsoe. But yeah, that, that was that was uh, interesting. And then the the sign and the and the place where he worked said "Keep America Pure." And the fact that he's in Harlem is interesting to me because uh, I know a book you've covered before by Lonsworth Stoddard, um, the political theorist from the 19, early 20th century, 1920. He wrote the book, uh, The Rising Tide of Color. Uh, Harlem was really seen as a, a threat to global white supremacy. And I uh, just think it's interesting that that Keep America Pure came up when he was working in Harlem because it's often seen it was often seen by the political theorists at the time as uh, imminent threat to worldwide supremacy um, and then i thought I noticed that Kimbrough was referred to as a slave driver and he was told not to think The main character was told do not think, and I think that white people do not want us thinking at all and so it was very um Yeah, it was very interesting he told him that. And then when he got reassigned to the character Lucius' work section, they got into that bit about education and things like that. And I think we often talk about education in a way where there's a split between formal education and just the way our economy is set up in this part of the world. There's the hands-on education and then there's the school formal education. And I, th- I think that's a false dilemma, just personally. But I think it's interesting how it came up, um, and how it it really functions to keep white people in charge, because that's who gets most of the uh, most of the degrees, most of the jobs. Even if when non-white people have degrees, it's still hard getting. They still face underemployment. And so he, him talking about these white guys who just come in. Um, fresh out of the classroom to get put in charge of him and really siphon off his knowledge that he's, he's learned to replace him. Um, that's something that happens in a lot of different industries. And so I thought it was interesting that it came up because it's taken place in, in the 1920s and just the continuity of this type of perverse relationship to the workplace uh, where you constantly have to worry about them trying to replace you and not appreciating you and, devaluing your ability to learn things um, I, I just thought that was interesting for this this, uh, this first chapter we did and thanks for letting me speak
3: Workplace racism every Thursday 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific appreciate that uh, JN St. Louis uh, other folks who dialed in if you have a hand up if you have commentary you'd like to share line should be open proceed may I be heard uh, greetings, Red in Nevada.
7: Hello, hello everyone. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I know when, like, they went through the part of the Invisible Man reading the letter by um, Doctor Bledsoe. I know I was definitely very, um, I don't know, distraught or kind of heartbroken. i like, I just, I guess, I was real hopeful that everything would actually work out. That oh, the all these letters were actually or, um, you know, to help him get a job, help the Invisible Man get a job. And then that kind of made me think about um, how the Invisible Man, he handed over the letters um, to all the other um, trustees and how they kind of, how the secretaries kept trying, kept like seeming so nice but still couldn't help him. And I just felt like maybe that and, you know, not – him, like in the book, you know, him going through this, you know, um, I don't know, just not really questioning that enough. Like, okay, maybe they weren't as nice as, you know, he thought they were. Maybe they weren't really as helpful as you thought they, they were, the secretaries are trying to be, you know, they always tried to see like the good in the, the, the white women secretaries. And I feel like that's definitely something that, um, you know, when I was more confused and even more confused people around me, we always try to, to see it for, well, oh, these people are ignorant. No, they actually have your, some of them actually know your fate or have their fate, you know, in their hands and can just be as nice as, or, you know, can pretend to be as nice as possible with a smile on their face, knowing that they're not going to help you. They have no intentions of helping you. So I, I, I was thinking about that with, um, that part. I also, um, just like uh, Jay had mentioned, um, I did uh, highlight the part when he, when grandfather, the, the part by um, the saying or the advice really by grandfather, where it said, uh, don't let no white man tell you his business because after he tells you, he's liable to get shamed. You know, he told you it, and then he'll hate you. And then, it's the, and then the part that I like the most is the fact is he's hating you all the time. So it's kind of like, you know, they tell you their business just to also give them that extra um, uh, uh, reason to to act out their hate. So it, it's not like, okay, well, but even before they t- told you their business, they already hated you. But just to give them that reason to really practice racism against you. I also thought it was interesting, um, the part with the young Mr. Emerson, Emerson when he was kind of wanting to, um, get the invisible man to go out to like the club or a party with him. And it kind of almost seemed like, is he, it could have also been like, you know, maybe somewhat of sexual harassment. Like, you know, this person, you know that this person was sent all the way up away from his family to chase, chasing a dream of getting a job. And you're just trying to invite him out to get drunk or, you know, just to go, go to a party. It's like, he doesn't have any, any ability to take care of himself. Why would you think that that would be the first thing that he would think about is going out and celebrating nothing. Um, but, you know, saying uh, he described basically, I guess, Harlem friends or, uh maybe a, uh, a a synonym for, I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, basically the same as black friends. And it kind of reminds me of today, like, you know, uh, urban being, you know, um, similar to black area or, or what have you. And then also, um, there was a couple of lines, or a line after that, where he says, uh, there's nothing like it in the city, just describing this club or whatever, um, and he said, and by some strange twist, it has a truly continental flavor. So, it's like, okay, well, it's supposed to be, there's supposed to be, I guess, maybe savages, or they're supposed to, you're only supposed to want to um, hang out with, you know, the, the niggers when you just kind of want to act out your... You know your kind of your niggery ways, but oddly, it's not just that they kind of have some type of sophistication to them. Um, And then with the whole Lucius part, I'm not sure about. um, I guess I'm not really all that well read, so I don't really know what to think about the the name. Um, It kind of it actually kind of makes me think about Empire because. the uh i forgot what his name is the the dad his name is lucius but that's what it basically made me think about um but actually back uh i think it's in that same chapter with the emerson uh, yeah the same chapter where he where the invisible man was still um talking to um the young mr emerson there was another example of the invisible man comparing himself to an animal um, after he left and after he left the the office or building or what have you. And he heard the man, I think it was a black man um, humming the song about the bird being picked clean. Um, Then he was thinking to himself, he said uh, when he was, he, when he was re um, when he was basically acting out the letter that blood sent to Emerson and he was like, well, the Robin bearing this letter is a former, is a former student. So I thought that was interesting. Just constantly, there's a little bit of him preparing himself to an animal. And I guess the last thing um, that I'll mention, because I know I've been talking for a while, um, the part about Lucius when he said, well, to you, I think he said, um, yeah, to you people basically, or to people like you, um, you call me Mr. Brockway. And it made me think about Mr. Um, Neely Fuller Jr. How he said, he had that example of two slaves being in the field and one says it's quitting time. And they're kind of arguing over who gets to say it's quitting time. But also within this book, it's kind of like, um, the invisible man, he somewhat uh, assigns Mr. Or Mrs. Or ma'am automatically to, uh, people to like uh, white people. But even when it comes to black people who are older than him, there's no Mr. Or Mrs. Or whatever, ma'am or sir. So I just thought that that was interesting, just really kind of, um, I think it's really telling for when we're more confused automatically knowing even in our speech to not give other black people respect and I'll mute my line thank you
3: names of black people consistent pattern Uh, other folks who dialed in appreciate the commentary read other folks who dialed in if we've not heard from you at all and you have a hand up the line should be open proceed
2: yes ma'am be here
3: Greetings, Mr. Demry. Four.
2: Yes, greetings, yes. Uh, greetings to other uh, callers and listeners.
3: <clears throat> uh, just like
2: the last uh, female caller uh, brought attention to The Dirge, <clears throat> which is a, like a funeral song, a song of sorrow to lighten your spirits. And the blues man had been singing this song about a robin <clears throat> with his, uh, tail feathers pit. And it was the brilliance of, uh, Ralph Ellison to use that as a way to show the extent of how the invisible man felt when he realized that he had been had by Dr. Blood. it's almost like a, it was a dream-shattering death. It was uh, similar to a death. That's why, in the beginning, he had felt, felt admiration for Dr. Bledsoe <clears throat> for beating the trustees at their own game, but later he wanted to kill him after he found out what he had done to him concerning the letters. Now, on to chapter 10, uh, uh, I have a couple of see, yeah, I wanted to say that the invisible man on the narrative heads to Long Island to work at the Liberty Paint. The Liberty Paint got signs and slogans suggesting that white is pure and that white is right. That's what it brings to mind to the narrator. And even signs of keep America pure. That was inside the factory. The trademark is a screaming eagle. All these are symbols of white supremacy. When he first um, is introduced to his supervisor, the office boy introduced him to uh, Miss Kilbu and um, showed him around gave him some information that could or could not be true uh, concerning the um, union and how they were hiring college boys like him. Um, Now, he could have been doing that to uh, either give him a heads up or to set him up for what he was later to uh, encounter. And that's another thing I like about uh, Ralph Emerson's writing. He seems to write from the end back, you know, so he already knows what what the ending is going to be, so he can set this up along the way. And um, he meets his boss, the white man, the terrible Mr. Kimbrough, and the boy calls him a slave driver. The invisible man has a white supervisor first and later a black supervisor. When he first meets the white supervisor, the white supervisor is yelling to somebody on the phone. He's known as the colonel, which is symbolizing rank. Um, <clears throat> he is the last phase or the last step of the process of paint making. So he's at a position <clears throat> I think where he could be sabotaging the paint or he could be rejecting acceptable paint. Nonetheless, uh Kimber tells the narrator not to think just like the first male caller pointed out. He didn't want him to, to think because uh he's completely uninterested in the narrator as a person, and I think for the first time the narrator starts to understand that um, you are looked at for the labor that you can produce. They told him <clears throat> to go to a certain room to get some some type of ingredients. I guess it's called dope that would uh, make the paint. Uh, whiter or more pure, but he didn't actually tell him where the room was or what the ingredients that he was looking for. So, that would be a form of racism. And <clears throat> uh, uh, on the narrator's part, there's no such thing as a dumb question. They should have made sure that he had clarity you know, before he started out on that cast, that's one thing we should remember about white people is to always ask questions, stay in the question lane, and make sure you have clarity on what it is that you have to do. And when he met his black boss, which was uh, Mr. Broadway, he was not formally introduced. They sent him down there, let's go down there and meet old Lucius, whatever he's going But Mr. Brockway is also a victim, and he doesn't realize it. And he thinks that he's irreplaceable. He's an intricate part of this paint-making process. But he fails to realize that the very position that he has is an act of racism because it's something so filthy and so dangerous that no white man whether they ever wanted it anyway, and then I like to point out the anti-blackness that was going on when he met his black supervisor. They ended up in a fisticuff actually physically fighting each other. Uh, Mr. Brockworth uh, was uh, affected by the John Henryism, whereas he made a statement that we're the machine inside the machine. That was a mention of Tar Baby in describing, I think, Mr. Brockworth. And Mr. Brockworth uh, was paranoid, fearful of his job. And I thought it was interesting that they sent the black college boys to Kimbu, and the black, I mean, and the white boys to Mr Brockway. You know, it sounds like somebody in personnel is wanting to stir something up or whatever, but instead of Mr. Brockway worried about his health and uh things that should be concerned with him, he's worried about his job and um, he ends up fighting with the uh with the young uh now. I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks
3: for taking the call. Appreciate that, Mr. Dimery, for the great Lucius Brockway. Uh, Other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, any comments, feedback, questions uh, about the text, if we have not heard from you, uh, you have a hand up. Line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Greetings, Rob in Wisconsin. Uh, greetings, Gus, and to the rest of the listeners and the callers on the line. <clears throat>
8: um, I wanted to uh, just make some uh, quick comments about the uh, previous chapters that we went over. Um, I, when I first read the text, uh, I didn't notice that the um, Invisible Man didn't have a name. So I am discovering the brilliance of mr Ellison um the second time around reading the text and um <clears throat> well what I would like to highlight is the um uh, interaction between uh was it mr emerson the um no n- not mr Emerson but the uh i can't recall the name but the school uh basically the school overseer the school Mr. Uh, No, or Doctor Bledsoe, the black one. Doctor Bledsoe. Okay. Yes, Doctor Doctor Bledsoe, and um, the Invisible Man. uh, The interaction uh, between the two um, before he actually left uh, for uh, New York, and um, what I would like to point out is how um, the Invisible Man. And uh, Dr. Bledsoe, uh, the contrast in the two at the time, how um, even though they're both black, how a black person can um, be invisible and uh, considered insignificant. And um, while at the same time, a black person can be very, quote unquote, important um, in handling, uh, business for white people. So during that interaction, I saw how a black person is important to the system or made important by the system and made insignificant, uh, by the same system. And what that, uh, interaction highlighted to me was that, um, the, through the system of white supremacy, um, just uh, a simple mistake changed the course um of the invisible man and um threw his uh, studies way off track and at the same time uh the doctor Bledsoe um was in a position where he is handling Um, quote-unquote, business for white people. And I thought that, um, like the system of white supremacy, um, while it can be invisible at times, even though it's working, um, I thought that that was just a great contrast uh, made by Mr. Ellison. Um, And I I, I drew that comparison, Uh, a man being invisible and the system at times Although it's there, it seems as it's invisible, too.
3: And uh, thanks for taking the call. Appreciate that, Rob in Wisconsin. Uh, Certainly for the narrator at this point in the text, uh, the system of white supremacy is invisible to him because he is not grasping it, not detecting it, not seeing it at all. Uh, optic White, indeed. Uh, other folks we've not heard from at all. If you have commentary, proceed.
0: Can I be heard?
3: Yes, ma'am. Software developer, Wisconsin, two in a row.
0: Yeah, we're, we're representing tonight. Um, so I thought, one of the things I thought this time when I read, oh, and good evening to everybody. Um, good evening, Dustin. Good evening to all the callers and listeners. Um but I thought this time around when I read the book that Dr. Leso and Lucius were uh, two sides of the same coin, basically. You know, they were both in this position where they felt like uh, they were irreplaceable, but at the same time, they knew deep down that they were. And so that fear of being replaced um, that the system of white supremacy had created uh, sort of motivated their actions, I think, both in uh, Lucius Brockway, that I know we haven't gotten to uh, the part where we'll receive Lucius in action, Um, but definitely for Dr. Bledsoe, uh, what we've read tonight. Uh, So I thought that was really interesting because there is a sharp contrast between the two. One is highly educated and one is uh, not very well educated. They speak differently. They dress differently. They're in different positions, but they are pretty much the same person when you think about it. Um, the line we we the machines inside the machine um, so I think it's I, I've always liked this part of the book it's really interesting right because he, he's at this paint factory and they're known for making making this super white optic white paint and the person who knows this formula to make this paint is this old black man that's in the basement and it makes me think you know um, I sort of come to the conclusion that the system of white supremacy really could not operate the way it does without the participation of non-white black people. I think that uh, whiteness needs the pathology of blackness in order to be white. You know, that's the one thing that they need. You know, they need that opposite, um, and so that that they just just our presence and just 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 being in their space is is sort of helping maintain the system of white supremacy. And especially the way we've been conditioned, as Mr. Neely Fuller always speaks about, the way we've been conditioned to think, speak, and act in ways that benefit the system of white supremacy, even though we don't realize that, and, you know, how we need to break that programming. So I I really like that line, and I always think about that uh, when I'm listening to Mr. Fuller. also, I I, uh, I thought Mr. The young Mr. Emerson was uh, very interesting, and I, I wanted to pose a question to the listeners: What do you think his motive was for telling um, for telling the unnamed protagonist uh, the truth, or at least letting him read the letter? Uh, I I just had that thought, and I was wondering what people thought about that. Also, lastly, I've been thinking a lot about the question that you posed at the beginning of the of this particular book reading. Um, why do white people like this so much? And I think that um, I think sometimes white people give things adulation and give things so much adulation, sort of to take it for their own. Or yes, um, when things are very constructive. They seem to are very constructive for non-white people, especially black people. They seem to want to sort of take it so that they can, um, so that we don't grab a hold of it, I guess for lack of a better term. You know, I think about a lot of things that they they have lauded over the years, um, I mean, just thinking about you know uh, the roots or to live or most deaf or you know them and, and, and or public enemy, I was actually listening to one of your professor Griff interviews earlier today and just how much they love that I mean there's this white man at my job who's playing public enemy like all the time in his car because they he grew up and he, he loved their music and it it strikes me as interesting because a lot of black people really don't listen to that music it's not marketed to them you know and perhaps there's perhaps it's a, a ploy to keep very constructive things from us by marketing it, marketing it to white people and um, sort of allowing them to snatch the constructive information from us before we even get a chance to really engage in it. Um, so that's all I have. Thank you for allowing me to share, and I'll meet my line.
3: Indeed, software developer in Wisconsin. Great contrast between uh, Lucius, the great Lucius Brockway and uh, Dr. Blitzo, who pretty much almost had the exact same white people uh, kind of propping up their power. Uh, Other folks we've not heard from at all. If you have commentary, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed.
9: Hello, can you hear my call? Yes, ma'am. Hi, this is Helen in New York. Um, hello to the guests and to everybody else. Um, what was very interesting to me was when he was, um, when the Invisible Man was in the last office, the guy who was revealing the the letter. Finally, the confusing manner that he was talking when he was trying to free him supposedly. Um, it was I don't. Um, it reminded me of something that you play every once in a while when you say bucket and buckets, when you use the term bucket and buckets of words. Um, that's what he was doing, the, the white guy in the office. And um, he could have just simply tell him, look, you know, they don't want you back at the school. Here's the letter, blah, blah, blah. But instead, he goes about questioning him and confusing him and confusing me as well. And um, and that's how I find a lot of white people talk to us at times. Um also um he when he was freeing him supposedly um you know sh- uh showing him the letter uh then he offered him a job like a couple of sentences later oh you could be my driver how are you freeing him and then offering him position to be your driver oh you also brought up oh have you been to such and such club or something like that it's supposed to be like um you know a place to party and drink or whatever and um He also offered him, so, oh, you could come with me to a party or whatever. I'm trying to get a job. I'm not thinking about partying. So that was very, you know, that's kind of like how white people are. Like the so-called want to be honest, but then want to say something to you that's non-constructive. Him going out to a party or him, uh, you know, uh, going out to drink or whatever it was that it just, it just wasn't constructive. And, um. What other point I had? Um, Oh, it's even funny how today, um, Lucius, like, he's clearly uneducated, and yet he knows everything about that job because he was there since day one, and yet he gets to work with someone who has at least been to college even though he hasn't graduated yet he's a junior or was a junior in college and it kind of reminds me about like today how you know non-white people we go to college and then we end up a lot of times being baristas at Starbucks or you know you know working uh, working in a field that we we are you know we didn't go to school for and um just to have employment and that's that's the only two points I had thank you for listening to me.
3: Indeed, Starbucks has got all kinds of free promotion this week. Man, I appreciate your commentary. Uh, Did anybody else uh, have a hand up uh, that had commentary or questions uh, that they wanted to get in? Did we miss anybody?
10: Um, Can I I be
3: heard? Wow, uh, we can hear you, but your volume is very low. If you could uh, either get closer to your microphone or if you could speak up or both. Can I be heard now? Uh, It's still a little low. Uh, If you could maybe speak up more, lots of black self-respect. I don't know if you have a, a volume button on your mic, but if you could speak up more, that would be great. Okay. Can now we got background noise from other people? Sorry. All right. Let's try it again.
10: Okay. Can I be heard?
3: I think we can tolerate that. Just make sure you don't let your voice drop. Speak up the whole time.
10: Well, um, so uh, the things that got my attention were the grandfather's voice on um, page one eighty-six and. The grandfather's voice uh, saying, um, Don't let no white man tell you his business because uh, he tells you he's liable to get shame and etc. I think that's um, good advice from grandfather. I think there's a lot of truth to, to that. I know that's certainly been my experience. Uh, they like to feel. Um, superior, so when they give you some information about them that makes them more human, potentially, um, then it, it somehow turns out being that they're not as superior as they once would have appeared. So I think there is a lot of truth in in that. On page one eighty nine, he's um, talking. Um And uh, I just wrote down. He says, "I'm your friend uh, when he's talking to the invisible Man, and uh, there's no such thing that might have been my experience. So I feel like that was deception. I also feel like he's trying to um, prepare, the invisible man for something that he wants from him. To me, it had homosexual overtones. I'll just be real clear. Um, That's just what I felt, but I could be wrong.
3: Anything specifically uh, that gave you those, those feelings uh, that there might've been some sort of uh, homosexual activity going on a passage or anything?
10: Well, yeah. As, as we were reading Uh, As the narrator was reading, but I can't point it out specifically. He just kept on in making innuendos. I know your people. I, I, you know, and other things. I just can't recall specifically. But that was the thought that I had when I was hearing it. Um, Also, um, on page one ninety one, the Invisible Man is filling. Hopelessness. What did I do? What have I done to deserve all of this mistreatment? Um, uh, This torment. He's he's just trying to function. He's trying to live. He's trying to go to school. He's trying to um, improve himself. And it's just one blow after the other. So he's on page 191 just trying to figure out what have I done? He's done nothing. So, in my opinion, um, except live in a system of racism, white supremacy. So, and the betrayal of Dr. Bledsoe with the the letters is just unspeakable. But we've seen it before. Um, And this is the kind of relationships we end up having with each other as black people many times because, and it's almost psychotic you know, to injure someone in this way uh, on this level. Um, so it was serious betrayal. Um, um, let's see. The, the robin, the, the plucking or something of the, of the robin, um, that seemed to be what's going on with this um, character. He, he does seem to be being plucked and uh, I don't have the exact passage in front of me, but the passage is there. Um, let's see. Uh, the part, I'll leave it at this. Uh, this there's a lot of things to, to consider, but on page uh, 195, he says, I'll never be the same. Well, he's making a decision now, uh, I think, and I think it's something that some people. Um, who have been tormented, deceived, and deluded over and over repeatedly time after time begin to come to the realization, I have to function differently. And it then um, can turn out to to be something not as positive as we would like in how we begin to have feelings. Um, Dr. Wilson used to say it's not about hate, but... At some point, you, you do make the decision, I have to function differently. So um, I'll leave it at that at this point. I don't understand. The only thing I'm thinking about uh, Gus and, and others is that Lucius reminds me of Lucifer, and that's the only thing I can come up with, but I'd be interested in hearing what others think about that name as well. And that's, I'll leave it at that. Back.
3: Spectacular. Appreciate the commentary. The great Lucius Brockway, one of my favorite characters in the book. Anybody that we missed? Anybody have a hand up that we've not heard from uh, at all? We nab, everybody. Okay. Uh, We have maybe 10 minutes, a little less, before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, I will try to share a few of the notes that I took. I think I said last week, and again, uh, we started kind of in the middle of chapter nine. So some of the dialogue between the protagonist and Mr. Emerson was at the end of last week, right? So uh, you might have to either use your memory or go back and look at your notes or highlights from last week to remember it all. Uh, I also concluded uh, that uh, the younger Mr. Emerson Uh, is behaving, in my view, like a a homosexual, uh, gay, white man who might be looking for some anti-sexual activity with the main character. And uh, I said some of the the ways that he was speaking to him last week, and I would even submit that Ellison might just be crafty enough as a writer when he, this is, well, I can't give you the page numbers, but it's right at the beginning of where we started this week in the middle of Chapter 9, where he says, of course not, I know you wouldn't, he said, fluttering his hand and sitting erect. I Now, I already had that view last week, but I think if you have already been using terms, and I think even the way that Mr. Morton, the narrator, is narrating the younger Mr. Emerson, he sounds effeminate the way that he's reading his character. He doesn't sound like uh, the way that he's voicing the other uh, male characters in the text, but I think Ellison is a skilled, slick enough writer that even submitting a word like erect in describing the younger Mr. Emerson pulls your mind in that direction of maybe something sexual happening here. And that happens repeatedly in the book anyway. Not necessarily uh, homosexual, but uh, white people in looking for some sort of sexual exploitation from black people. Uh, I thought you all, everybody, the grandfather's words about not trusting white people to tell you about their guilt or what have you. Actually, that reminded me of uh barack obama's dreams from my father the passage where he was drinking with the white man and he talks uh to frank the black male i forgot his last name but uh frank this is when he's in hawaii when he's very young and the older black male again getting uh getting advice much like granddad from an older black person and he says Uh, That this white man, your grandfather, uh, the black man was talking about President Obama's white grandfather. He says he can he can drink. He can come to my house and drink and and talk about whatever. But I could never do that. I could never let my guard down like that uh, with him. He's white. Uh, It reminded me for some reason of that passage from dreams from my father. Uh, I think it was Jay in St. Louis and others who were talking about uh, Ralph Ellison's uh, adoration of white literature. Uh, we've had references to Homer and The Odyssey and Ralph Waldo Emerson. This week, we get uh, Huckleberry Finn, the legend, Mark Twain. Uh, and it's interesting, I thought, that the Emerson character was saying, I'm Huckleberry. We still have this Huckleberry. It, it, that's exactly what he said. It's still Jim and Huck Finn. Jim is nigger Jim in the book, and Huck Finn is supposed to be the non-racist good white boy who makes all these race can't talk about huck finn right now but in my view huck finn is racist Uh, i think people try and read that as as huck finn is not racist huck finn is racist tom sawyer is racist all of the whites these little children are racist i thought it was interesting that this character so-called well-meaning friendly white person is saying oh yeah i'm huck finn The narrator's confusion. I thought that was a great point as well. Buckets and buckets of words. He's using metaphors and all these references to literature and other sources. He could have made it real quick and simple. Here's the letter. This is what they did. It's messed up. Maybe I can help you get a job. He's not doing any of that. He's being all confusing, still practicing racism, white supremacy, uh, in my opinion, not even (laughs) making it uh, not even trying to hide it that much. In my view, Uh, let's see. The character's confusion uh, comes through when he's talking to Mr., the younger Mr. Emerson, and he gets frustrated like, man, you know, you're being all convoluted. I don't understand what you're saying. You're not letting me talk to Mr. Emerson. I have a letter. You just don't want me to have an education. You're trying to get me to leave the college. He says, what kind of man are you anyway? What have you got against me? You, a northern white man, like he's outraged, (laughs) like I would I would expect this from some old cracker down in the south. But you're a northern white man. You're supposed to be better than this. Confusion is lethal uh man talk about the northern i don 't even view i don't use the word white liberal uh it's t- racist what does it mean to be white? Just keep coming back to that question man monumental act of white supremacy talked about this regularly when he says. Uh, the white man is expressing his frustration with Dr. Bledsoe, like, oh, I don't like him either for whatever reason, like Dr. Bledsoe has some power over him. He says, Dr. Bledsoe, he said with distaste, he's like my, he pauses, he ought to be horse in a system of white supremacy, racism. Dr. Bledsoe ought to be horse whipped, not Dr. Emerson, not the whites who allowed Dr. Bledsoe to be in charge and run the campus in this manner. Not any white folks but a black person should be horsewhipped. That's what we need more of in the system of white supremacy, from a white liberal no less. yeah, the perhaps you'd like to be my valet going to the party again. That's where it seemed something uh, sexual, obviously racist, but something sexual too. come to this party and, and hang out with us. It just seemed real uh, incorrect. Reminded me almost of the Chris situation where uh, from the hate you give where stars got all the serious things going on in her life and come to the IHOP, have pancakes with me and we can do some fooling around in the back of the car in the bushes type thing. Uh I thought, again, the brilliance of Ralph Ellison just being so uh simple sometimes in the way that he can make a really brilliant point in my opinion when he's bringing in all these images of the stereotypes across the street in the shade of an awning a shoeshine boy was dancing for pennies this is after he's been crushed with his dreams like this is all we can be as black people i had all these ambitions to be great and to work at the college and now his dreams torn asunder this is where he hears the song about the robber and getting his tail feathers plucked and the shine boy and he says i went onto the corner and got onto the bus and went automatically to the rear. The automaton. I don't even need a sign. I don't need to be told. I'm in the north now. I don't need to be told. Nigga, get to the back of the bus. I do it automatically. Uh, Let's see. Oh, Brilliant paragraph. He says, everyone seemed to have some plan for me and beneath that, some more secret plan. What was Young Emerson's plan and why should it have included me? Who was I anyway? Don't even know who you confusion is lethal. And it's very important that racists do this all the time where they come and present you with a plan or I'm here to help. That's a big one. I'm here to help got this new drug we're here to help it's going to be great going to be we've been looking out for you black people and be extremely cautious and suspicious and that's what he is slowly starting to understand that wow these people are coming and saying this that and the other and a lot of times they got ulterior objectives that are not in my best interest and contradict what they originally proposed Uh, but same thing going back to the horse whip again system of racism white supremacy we had this in the hate you give out of all the people that deserve to be harmed, it's not a white person. In the hate you give, it was King, the black gangster that we wanted to get. We had Dr. Bledsoe that should be horse whipped. Then he comes back, who do I want to get revenge on? Not Mr. Emerson, not a white person. Dr. Bledsoe, consistent in the system of white supremacy. We get upset. We want to take out vengeance, find another victim. Uh, let's. Whew. Lots I could say about the paint. Uh, I think number one, Keep America pure with Liberty Paints reminds me a lot of somebody's successful presidential campaign slogan. Like, wow, it reminds me a lot of that phrasing. Um, I think it's extremely important, extremely symbolic. I said pay attention to the colors. Ralph. Uh, Ralph Ellison was a painter, studied painting art. Uh, That in this factory that is known for making this brilliantly white paint, optic white, which going back to vision, brilliantly white paint, that you have a black person who is pitch black. He's so dirty, he said he was pitch black. His overalls were pitch black. And with cottony white hair, talking about Lucius Brockway, he could have used any adjective he wanted, cottony, to invoke the plantation nature of this, I think. Uh, But you have to add these black drops to the paint, and then black people literally... Uh, to get it to be super, super white. System of white supremacy requiring, I think uh, Colin Wisconsin talked about that, black people, blackness uh, to be sustained. Um mm, said he was protesting and pleading for fairness. No, that is not going to work out. Uh, uh, I think uh, just with the optic white and vision and being invisible, I think it's important. He said um when Kimbrough and the whites at the factory are coming in and saying, oh, the paint's good, the paint's no good, even when he's looking at it and saying, oh, wow, he thinks the paint's good, but I can see the gray streaks in it. Whites do this all the time, again, to promote confusion where it totally erodes your confidence in yourself. He had already told him he didn't want him to think, you all at all pointed that out, uh, where you can't think. You have been totally, uh, your ability to trust your own reasoning and logic has been eroded where I can only trust to go and ask these white people. I cannot possibly think for myself. He says, I stared about for a minute, wondering if I were seeing things. I can't even believe my eyes anymore. Racists have confused me, so they do that all the time. Uh, I just... Hearing this, like Lucius Brockway, extraordinary (laughs) illustrations of counter-racism where he has worked out a code knowing that whites are coming to take his job. He has successfully figured out a code to stop that from happening. One of them being, I'm going to be real careful about what I say. It seems like we talk about that on workplace racism a lot. Uh, The anti-blackness in the say that's throughout the book. I think we talked a lot about uh, a lot about that oh i thought it was so uh important as well where he was talking about the narrator where he's talking about uh lucius brockway and he's saying the confusion he says you could never be sure for at home an old man employed as a janitor at the waterworks was the only one who knew the location of all the water mains this is consistent in the system of white supremacy even to the point that was made earlier about how you have a lot of black people who are college graduates working at Starbucks, give them another plug that you have a lot of black people who are extraordinarily talented, skilled, brilliant, competent, and they're not being compensated as such. Uh, You don't, we don't think of them. They're not being given or treated as though they are competent, intelligent. Uh, They're just doing terrible jobs. That's throughout the history of racism, white supremacy, and even especially having black people who are at companies where they know everything. They are the literal blueprint For the company, but they're not compensated as such. They're treated like Lucius Brockway. Uh, I also thought uh, when he says maybe he was dissimulating like some of the teachers at the college who, to avoid trouble when driving through small surrounding towns, wore chauffeur caps and pretended that their cars belonged to white men. Wow. I was wondering now that does that apply to Dr. Bledsoe as well? Uh, Let's see. The metaphor, Brockway grinning like a dried prune, I thought was important. Uh, and I even I guess the last point that I'll make, the names I thought were so important uh, when Lucius Brockway corrects the narrator. Black self-respect. Phenomenal. Uh, when he comes in and says Lucius because the white people did not call him by his first name. I went back to double check to see if that, you know, how did the white people introduce Uh, the protagonist to Lucius Brockway. How did they reference him? And they said his full name, Lucius Brockway, and then they said Brockway. That's who you're going to be looking for. He goes down. He doesn't say Brockway. The narrator says Lucius, and Mr. Brockway corrects him. uh, Black self respect. Uh, And just to contrast, uh, later on in the text, when he's Mr. Brockway is telling the story about when he was going to retire and the white guy was going to take over his job, but he couldn't get it correct. And so Mr. Uh, Sparlin, uh had to come and get him to come back and work this nasty grimy job to get their white paint corrected uh, he says <laughs> he's talking to Mr. Sparland Mr. Sparland comes to Lucius Brockway's house calls him Lucius Mr. Brockway responds well sir Mr. Stra- uh, Mr. Sparland sir not just calling him by his last name but calling him sir twice to bookend calling him Mr. Sparland Ultra, ultra respect for whites in the system of racism, white supremacy, none for black people. Uh, Lots more. I could get in, but I want to make time for the second audio clip. Uh, If you did not get to share at all, just make a note and we will have ample time to share once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, So we are picking up. uh, We are on. Make sure I get the exact spot where we uh, stopped at here. So machine, we are the machines inside the machine. We're in chapter 10. I can't give out a page number because I have the ebook. but we are the machines inside the machine. That's where we're at in chapter 10 context of white supremacy, the brilliant Ralph Ellison, invisible man, context of white supremacy, audio segment number two. You know, the best
1: selling paint we got the one that made this here business he asked as I helped him fill a vat with a smelly substance. No, uh, I-, I don't. Our white. Optic white. Why the white rather than the others? Because we started stretching it from the first. We make the best white paint in the world. I don't give a damn what nobody says. Our white is so white, you can paint a chunk of coal and you'd have to Crack it open with a sledgehammer to prove it wasn't white, clear through. His eyes glinted with humorless conviction, and I had to drop my head to hide my grin. You noticed that sign on the top of the building? Oh, You can't miss that, I said. You read the slogan. I don't remember. I, I was in such a hurry. Well, you might not believe it, but I helped the old man make up that slogan. If it's optic white, it's the right white, he quoted with an upraised finger, like a preacher quoting Holy Writ. I got me a $300 bonus for helping to think that up. These newfangled advertising folks has been trying to work up something about the other colors talking about rainbows or something, but hell, they can't get nowhere. If it's optic white, It's the right white, I repeated, and suddenly had to repress a laugh as a childhood jingle rang through my mind. If you're white, you're right, I said. That's it, he said. And that's another reason why the old man ain't gonna let nobody come down here messing with me. He knows what a lot of them new fellas don't. He knows... "'that the reason our paint is so good is because of the way "'Lucius Brockway puts the pressure on them oils and resins "'before they even leaves the tanks,' he laughed maliciously. "'They thinks cause everything down here is done by machinery. "'That's all there is to it. "'They crazy. "'Ain't a continental thing that happens down here "'that ain't as if an I done put my black hands into it. Them machines just do the cooking. "'These here hands.' Right here, due to sweetening. Yes, sir, Lucius Brockway hit it square on the head. I dips my finger in and sweets it. Come on, let's eat. But what about the gauges, I said, seeing him go over and take a thermos bottle from a shelf near one of the furnaces. Oh, We'll be here close enough to keep an eye on him. Don't you worry about that. But I left my lunch in the locker room over at building number one. Well, go on and get it, and come back here and eat. Down here, we have to always be on the job. A man don't need no more than 15 minutes to eat, no how. Then I say let him get back on the job. Upon opening the door, I thought I had made a mistake. Men dressed in splattered painter's caps and overalls sat about on benches, listening to a thin, tuberculo looking man who was addressing them in a nasal voice. Everyone looked at me, and I was starting out when the thin man called. There's plenty of seats for latecomers. Come in, brother. Brother? Even after my weeks in the north, this was <laughs> surprising. I, uh, uh, um, I, I was looking for the locker room, I spluttered. You're in it, brother. Weren't you told about the meeting? Meeting? Why, no, sir, I wasn't. The chairman frowned. You see, the bosses are not cooperating, he said to the others. Brother, who's your foreman? Uh, Mr. Brockway, sir, I said. Suddenly, the men began scraping their feet and cursing. I looked about me. What was wrong? Were they objecting to my referring to Brockway as Mr.? Quiet, brothers, the chairman said, leaning across his table, his hand cupped to his ear. Now, what was that, brother? Uh, Who is your foreman? Lucius Brockway, sir, I said, dropping the mister. But this seemed only to make them more hostile. Get him the hell out of here, they shouted. I turned, a group on the far side of the room kicked over a bench, yelling, throw him out! Throw him out! I inched backwards, hearing the little man bang on the table for order. Men! Brothers! Give the brother a chance! He looks like a dirty fink to me, a first-class enameled fink. The hoarsely-voiced word grated my ears like nigger in an angry southern mouth. Brothers, please! The chairman was waving his hands as I reached out behind me for the door and touched an arm, feeling it snatch violently away. I dropped my hand. Who sent this fink into the meeting, brother chairman? Ask him that, a man demanded. "'No, wait,' the chairman said. "'Don't ride that word too hard.' "'Ask him, brother chairman,' another man said. "'Okay, but but don't label a man a fink until you know for sure.' "'The chairman turned to me. "'How'd you happen in here, brother?' "'The men quieted, listening. "'I left my lunch in my locker,' I said, my mouth dry. "'You weren't sent into the meeting?' "'No, sir. "'I didn't know about any meeting.' The hell, he says, none of these Finks ever knows! Throw the lousy bastard out! Now, wait, I said. They became louder, threatening. Respect the chair, the chairman shouted. We're a democratic union here, following democratic. Never mind, get rid of the Fink! Procedures. It's our task to make friends with all the workers, and I mean all. That's how we build the union strong. Now let's hear what the brothers got to say. No more of that beefing and interrupting. I broke into a cold sweat, my eyes seeming to have become extremely sharp, causing each face to stand out vivid in its hostility. I heard, When were you hired, friend? Uh, This morning, I said. See, brothers, he's a new man. We don't want to make the mistake of judging the worker by his foreman. Some of you also work for son-of-a-bitches, remember? Suddenly the men began to laugh and curse. Here's one right here, one of them yelled. Mine wants to marry the boss's daughter. A friggin' eight-day wonder. This sudden change made me puzzled and angry, as though they were making me the butt of a joke. Honor, brothers. Perhaps the brother would like to join the union. How about it, brother? Sir? I didn't know what to say. I knew very little about unions, But most of these men seemed hostile, and before I could answer her, a fat man with shaggy gray hair leaped to his feet, shouting angrily, I'm against it. Brothers, this fellow could be a fink even if he was hired right this minute. Not that I aim to be unfair to anybody either. Maybe he ain't a fink, he cried passionately. But brothers... I want to remind you that nobody knows it, and it seems to me that anybody that would work under that son-of-a-bitchin' bitch and double in Brockway for more than fifteen minutes is just as apt not to be naturally fink-minded. Please, brothers, he cried, waving his arms for quiet, as some of you brothers have learned to the sorrow of your wives and babies, a fink don't have to know about trade unionism to be a fink. Finkism? Hell, I've made a study of finkism. Finkism is born into some guys. It's born into some guys, just like a a good eye for color is born into other guys. That's right. That's the honest scientific truth. A fink don't even have to have heard of a union before. He cried in a frenzy of words. All you have to do is bring him around the neighborhood of a union, and next thing you know, why zip. He's finking his finking ass off. He was drowned out by shouts of approval. Men turned violently to look at me. I felt choked. I wanted to drop my head but faced them, as though facing them was itself a denial of his statements. Another voice ripped out of the shouts of approval, spilling with great urgency from the lips of a little fellow with glasses who spoke with the index finger of one hand upraised and the thumb of the other crooked in the suspender of his overalls. I want to put this brother's remarks in the form of a motion. I move that we determine through a thorough investigation whether the new worker is a fink or no, and if he is a fink, let us discover who he's finking for. And this, brother members, would give the worker time, if he ain't a fink, to become acquainted with the work of the Union and its aims. After all, brothers, we don't want to forget that workers like him aren't so highly developed as some of us who've been in the labor movement for a long time. So, I says... Let's give him time to see what we've done to improve the condition of the workers. And then, if he ain't a fink, we can decide in a democratic way whether we want to accept this brother into the Union. Brother Union members, I thank you. He sat down with a bump. The room roared. "'Fighting anger grew inside me, so I was not so highly developed as they. "'What did he mean? Were they all PhDs? I couldn't move. "'Too much was happening to me. "'It was as though by entering the room I had automatically applied for membership, "'even though I had no idea that a union existed "'and had come up simply to get a cold pork-chop sandwich.' I stood trembling, afraid that they would ask me to join, but angry that so many rejected me on sight. And worst of all, I knew they were forcing me to accept things on their own terms, and I was unable to leave. All right, brothers, we'll take a vote, the chairman shouted. All in favor of the motion, signify by saying aye. The eyes drowned him out. The eyes carried it, the chairman announced, as several men turned to stare at me. At last I could move. I started out forgetting why I had come. Come in, brother, the chairman called. You can get your lunch now. Let him through. You brothers around the door. My face stung as though it had been slapped. They had made the decision without giving me a chance to speak for myself. I felt that every man present looked upon me with hostility And though I had lived with hostility all my life, now, for the first time, it seemed to reach me as though I had expected more of these men than others, even though I had not known of their existence. Here in this room, my defenses were negated, stripped away, checked at the door as the weapons, the knives and razors and owl-head pistols of the country boys were checked on Saturday night of the golden day, I kept my eyes lowered, mumbling, pardon me, pardon me, all the way to the drab green locker, where I removed the sandwich for which I no longer had an appetite and stood fumbling with the bag, dreading to face the men on my way out. Then, still hating myself for the apologies made coming over, I brushed past silently as I went back. When I reached the door, the chairman called, Just a minute, brother. We want you to understand that this is nothing against you personally. What you see here is the results of certain conditions here at the plant. We want you to know that we are only trying to protect ourselves. Someday we hope to have you as a member in good standing. From here and there came a half-hearted applause that quickly died. I swallowed and stared, unseeing the words spurting to me from a red, misty distance. Okay, brothers, the voice said. Let him pass. I stumbled through the bright sunlight of the yard, past the office workers chatting on the grass, back to building number two, to the basement. I stood on the stairs, feeling as though my bowels had been flooded with acid. Why hadn't I simply left, I thought with anguish. And since I had remained, why hadn't I said something? Defended myself. Suddenly I snatched the wrapper off a sandwich and tore it violently with my teeth, hardly tasting the dry lumps that squeezed past my constricted throat when I swallowed. Dropping the remainder back into the bag, I held on to the handrail, my legs shaking as though I had just escaped a great danger. Finally it went away and I pushed open the metal door. What kept you so long, Brockway snapped from where he sat on a wheelbarrow. He had been drinking from a white mug now cupped in his grimy hands. I looked at him abstractedly, seeing how the light caught on his wrinkled forehead, his snowy hair. I said, what kept you so long? What had he to do with it, I thought, looking at him through a kind of mist, knowing that I disliked him and that I was very tired. "'I say,' he began, and I heard my voice come quiet from my tense throat "'as I noticed by the clock that I had been gone only twenty minutes. "'I ran into a union meeting. "'Union?' I heard his white cup shatter against the floor "'as he uncrossed his legs, rising. "'I knowed you belonged to that bunch of troublemaking foreigners. "'I knowed it. Get out!' he screamed. "'Get out of my basement!' He started toward me as in a dream, trembling like the needle of one of the gauges as he pointed toward the stairs, his voice shrieking. I stared. Something seemed to have gone wrong. My reflexes were jammed. But what's what's the matter, I stammered, my voice low and my mind understanding and yet failing exactly to understand. What's wrong? You heard me. Get out. But I don't understand. Shut up and get. But Mr. Brockway, I cried, fighting to hold something that was giving way. You... Two bit trouble making union louse. Look, man, I cried urgently. Now, I don't belong to any union. If you don't get out of here, you low down skunk, he said, looking wildly about the floor, I'm liable to, to kill you, the Lord being my witness. I'll kill you. It was incredible. Things were speeding up. You'll do what? I stammered. I'll kill you! That's what? He said it again and something fell away from me and I seemed to be telling myself in a rush... You were trained to accept the foolishness of such old men as this even when you thought them clowns and fools. You were trained to pretend that you respected them and acknowledged in them the same quality of authority and power in your world as the whites before whom they bowed and scraped and feared and loved and imitated and you were even trained to accept it when, angered or spiteful or drunk with power, they came at you with a stick or strap or cane and you made no effort to strike back, but only to escape, unmarked. But this was too much. He was not my grandfather or uncle or father or preacher or teacher. Something uncoiled in my stomach and I was moving toward him, shouting more at a black blur that irritated my eyes than at a clearly defined human face. "'You'll kill who? You! That's who!' Listen here, you old fool, don't talk about killing me. Give me a chance to explain. I don't belong to anything. Go on. Pick it up. Go on, I yelled, seeing his eyes fasten upon a twisted iron bar. You're old enough to be my grandfather, but if you touch that bar, I swear I'll make you eat it. I done told you. Get out of my basement, you impudent bitch! he screamed. I moved forward seeing him stoop and reach aside for the bar and I was throwing myself forward feeling him go over with a grunt hard against the floor rolling beneath the force of my lunge. It was as though I had landed upon a wiry rat. He scrambled beneath me, making angry sounds and striking my face as he tried to use the bar. I twisted it from his grasp, feeling a sharp pain stab through my shoulder. He's using a knife, flashed through my mind, and I slashed out with my elbow, sharp against his face, feeling it land solid and seeing his head fly backwards and up and back again as as I struck again, hearing something fly free and skitter across the floor, thinking it's gone. Then, knife is gone and struck again as he tried to choke me, jabbing at his bobbing head, feeling the bar come free and bringing it down and his head missing the metal clinking against the floor and bringing it up for a second try and him yelling, no, no, you the best, you the best. I'm going to beat your ''Brains out,'' I said, my throat dry. ''Stabbing me?'' ''No,'' he panted. I, ''I got enough. Ain't you heard me say I got enough?'' ''So, when you can't win, you want to stop. Damn you, if you've cut me bad, I'll tear your head off!'' Watching him warily, I got to my feet. I dropped the bar as a flash of heat swept over me. His face was caved in. ''What's wrong with you, old man?'' I yelled nervously. ''Don't you know better than to attack a man a third your age?'' He blanched at being called old, and I repeated it, adding insults I'd heard my grandfather use. Why, you old-fashioned slavery-time, mammy-made, handkerchief-headed bastard. You should know better. What made you think you could threaten my life? You meant nothing to me. I came down here because I was sent. I didn't know anything about you or the Union either. Why'd you start riding me the minute I came in? Are you people crazy? Does this... Paint go to your head? Are, are, are you drinking it? He glared, panting tiredly. Great tucks showed in his overalls where the folds were stuck together by the goo with which he was covered, and I thought star baby and wanted to blot him out of my sight but now my anger was flowing fast from actions to words i go to get my lunch and they ask me who i work for and when i tell them they call me a fink a fink you people must be out of your minds no sooner do i get back down here than you start yelling that you're gonna kill me what's going on what if you got against me what did i do he glowered at me silently then pointed to the floor Reach and draw back a nub, I warned. Can't a man even get his teeth? He mumbled, his voice strange. Teeth? With a shamed frown, he opened his mouth. I saw a blue flash of shrunken gums. The thing that had skittered across the floor was not a knife, but a plate of false teeth. For a fraction of a second, I was desperate, feeling some of my justification for wanting to kill him slipping away. My fingers leaped to my shoulder, finding wet cloth, but no blood. The old fool had bitten me. A wild flash of laughter struggled to rise from beneath my anger. He had bitten me. I looked on the floor, seeing the smashed mug and the teeth glinting dully across the room. Get them, I said, growing ashamed. Without his teeth, some of the hatefulness seemed to have gone out of him. But I stayed close as he got his teeth and went over to the tap and held them beneath a stream of water. A tooth fell away beneath the pressure of his thumb and I heard him grumbling as he placed the plate in his mouth. Then, wiggling his chin, he became himself again. You was really trying to kill me, he said. He seemed unable to believe it. You started the killing. I don't go around fighting, I said. Why didn't you let me explain? Is it against the law to belong to the Union? that damn union, he cried almost in tears, that damn union, they after my job, I know they after my job, for one of us to join one of them damn unions, it's like we was to bite the hand of the man who, who teached us to bathe in a bathtub, I, 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 I hates it, a, and I mean to keep on doing all I can to chase it out of the plant, they after my job, the chicken shit bastards, Spittle formed at the corners of his mouth, he seemed to boil with hatred, but what do I have to do with that? I said, feeling suddenly the older. Because them young colored fellas up in the lab is, is trying to, to join that outfit, that's what. You hear the white man done give them jobs, he wheezed as though pleading a case. You done give them good jobs, too, and, and they so ungrateful. They they goes and joins up with the the backbiting union. I never seen such a no-good, ungrateful bunch. All they doing is, is making things bad for the rest of us. Well... I'm sorry, I said. I I didn't know about all that. I I came here to take a temporary job, and I certainly didn't intend to get mixed up in any quarrels. But as for us, I'm ready to forget our disagreement, if you are. I held out my hand, causing my shoulder to pain. He gave me a gruff look. You ought to have more self-respect than to fight an old man, he said. I got grown boys older than you. I thought you were trying to kill me, I said, my hand still extended. I thought you had stabbed me. Well, I I don't like a a lot of bickering and, and confusion myself, he said, avoiding my eyes. And it was as though the closing of his sticky hand over mine was a signal I heard a shrill hissing from the boilers behind me and turned, hearing Brockway yell, I told you to watch them gauges get over to the big valves, quick. I dashed for where a series of valve wheels projected from the wall near the crusher, seeing Brockway scrambling away in the other direction, thinking, where's he going? As I reached the valves and hearing him yell, turn it, turn it. Which, I yelled, reaching, the white one, fool, the white one. I jumped, catching it and pulling it down with all my weight, feeling it give. But this only increased the noise, and I seemed to hear Brockway laugh as I looked around to see him scrambling for the stairs, his hands clasping the back of his head, and his neck pulled in close like a small boy who has thrown a brick into the air. Hey, you! Hey, you! I yelled, hey! But it was too late. All my movements seemed too slow, ran together, I felt the wheel resisting and tried vainly to reverse it and tried to let go. And it's sticking to my palms and my fingers stiff and sticky and I turned, running now, seeing the needle on one of the gauges swinging madly like a beacon gone out of control, and trying to think clearly, my eyes darting here and there, through the room of tanks and machines, and up the stairs so far away, and hearing the clear new note arising while I seemed to run swiftly up an incline and shot forward with sudden acceleration into a wet blast of black emptiness that was somehow a bath of whiteness. It was a fall. "'into space that seemed not a fall but a suspension. "'Then a great weight landed upon me, "'and I seemed to sprawl in an interval of clarity "'beneath a pile of broken machinery. "'My head pressed back against a huge wheel. "'My body splattered with a stinking goo.' Somewhere, an engine, ground in furious futility, grating loudly until a pain shot around the curve of my head and bounced me off into blackness for a distance, only to strike another pain that lobbed me back. And in that clear instant of consciousness, I opened my eyes to a blinding flash. Holding on grimly, I could hear the sound of someone Waiting, sloshing nearby in an old man's garrulous voice saying, I told them these here young 1900 boys ain't no good for the job. They ain't got the nerves. No, sir, they just ain't got the nerves. I tried to speak to answer, but something heavy moved again, and I was understanding something fully and trying again to answer, but seemed to sink to the center of a lake of heavy water and pause, transfixed and numb with the sense that I had lost irrevocably an important victory.
3: We don't have the applause button back on the context of white supremacy, but if I did, It would be in use now. Ralph Ellison. Wow. No contest easily. Not just in Gus's top five. Easily. Gus's favorite book all time. It is not close at all. No contest. This is the only book Ralph Ellison wrote. He did lots of other writing. He has like collections of essays and such. Uh, that he wrote, many of which uh, dealing directly with racism, white supremacy that you might want to check out. But in terms of other novels uh, during his life, he did not publish anything else. Juneteenth was published uh, posthumously, in my opinion. This is a mic drop. You do not need to write anything else. If you write Invisible Man, you have pretty much done all the writing that needs to be done, in my view. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code five, six, four, nine, four, three pound press star six, one. If you would like to participate uh, folks who died, well, I guess let me check and nab folks that we have not heard from at all. Uh, and then I'll get everybody else. So any people that have not participated, if you didn't get to share, comment at all, uh, you should go ahead get a hand up right now press star 6-1 and we'll make sure that you are one of the first uh, to get on. Uh, if we didn't hear from you before please don't wait until the last minute if you think you have commentary. Uh, with that uh, let's see, everybody who has a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Oh, wait a minute. Caller, uh Caller in the 712. If you had commentary, proceed.
0: Guys, everybody, thanks for um, listening to me tonight. I'm glad I get to read this book with the cows. Um, I want to start off with the um, first thing I noticed with the first reading how when uh, when the invisible man went to talk to the, who I, I, he sounded, I mean, Joe Morton made him sound like a, a, a feminine man. When he went and talked to him, and it was like he he knew more than um he knew more than um the invisible man and i I felt like I feel like that a lot too, like white people will sit there and know like way more than you, and you'll sit there and you've looking around you in a day's like what well, what am I supposed to do and all along they they know it, but they won't necessarily just come out and tell you they'll code it and try to tell you in some old confusing way but That just reminded me of, um, yeah, some stuff that was going on in my life still going on. And uh, another thing, um, when he was at work, okay, we all been at work, and somebody will give you some wrong information, and you will take the information and start doing the job, and then you'll get in trouble because somebody gave you the incorrect information. And so that reminded me of a lot of job situations that I had as well. I still don't know if we found out if the founder, were we saying that the founder was a white person? Because I went back and listened to that again. I mean, I listened to this book a lot, and I still don't know if the founder was, was white or black. And I, I know that was from last week, so
7: forgive me for bringing
0: that up. But um, good book. I love Ralph Ellison and Joe Morton. This man is a genius narrator. And that's all I want to say right now. Thank you so much. I mean, my life.
3: Shout out to Joe Morton as well. Much better than his work on scandal, in my opinion, although I have a very, very small sample size of sca- uh, scandal that I have observed. Uh, and the founder, if it's capital F founder, like when Reverend Barbie is talking about the founder, I think that is a black male because he talks about how he was in slavery and you know all the other things that he went through as a victim of white supremacy. Uh, I think uh, when they are talking like capital C creator uh for the college then I think they're talking about the whites who you know are in charge the real power behind everything but I think the founder is black if other folks if I'm in error if other folks uh you know want to comment on that you can as well uh Ivy uh, if you have commentary uh line should be open feel free it's uh breaking up a lot am I clear on
5: this end uh yes ma'am Hello? Uh,
3: yes, ma'am, you're clear.
5: Yes, yeah, uh, man, it's it's real choppy. I'll chime back in in a couple of seconds. I'm going to go get my headphones and see if that fixes it on my end, because I can't really uh, hear anything too well.
0: <laughs> okay. Ivy, I don't think it's your end. I think cause when I was talking to you, Gus, it, you, it, you're you chopping up. I don't know if I was coming in clear, but it's real um, choppy when, when you're speaking, Gus.
3: Hmm. Okay. How interesting. Everybody uh sounded clear. Let's see.
0: Uh Gus, I've also heard that as well. you are breaking hmm. up a bit.
3: Oh, is it is it just me or is everybody breaking up or is it just me? Maybe my microphone or something is is off.
0: Uh it's just been you. Okay. But I mean that the last sentence you gave was very clear.
3: No. Hmm. okay well uh i guess ivy you were gonna comment i'll double check my my mic situation uh ivy i don't know if you switched your headset or if you needed a little bit more time to switch things around if you wanted to get your commentary in um i can
5: actually hear things better with the headphones the thing is, is i'm I'm on the, the vote line so that I've had trouble with that in the past. Can you hear me well?
3: Yes, ma'am. You, you're Crystal.
5: Okay. Um, greetings to you, Gus, and to all the callers on the line. I have a question. Um, did Was it um, Mr. Emerson, the, the, the young one, the son, did he put his hand on the invisible man's knee really quick?
3: Uh, I'd need a minute or two to kind of go back to the chapter nine.
5: Because I think that uh, that's what it said, because you guys were asking about um, what may have taken place that seemed like it was, you know, homosexual, and I was, that if I'm getting the right, from getting the people correctly, I, I, I thought that that seemed pretty homoerotic, and that kind of jumped out at me. And there was also a real, um, I thought, anti-black statement that was made, it was in the first segment as well, where... Um, the Invisible Man, he compared something to blackness. I can't remember what it was. I don't know if he said a black haze or he said a black something. Um, and he he compared that to something that was white that was correct, but the black thing was uh, incorrect. And I also wondered if um, Dr. Bledsoe, I believe it was, if he expelled The Invisible Man to show his loyalty to white people because things didn't go too well with uh Mr. Norton I believe it was and why he and also and also I thought that it might have been revenge that he deceived him um with those letters um because because he had threatened to tell Mr. Norton and also prevent him you know, going and telling him if he's all this time thinking that he's going to be coming back by the time he figures it out, maybe it'll be, it will be too late. But, uh, that's all I have for right now. And, uh, uh, thanks everyone. Thanks for having me my line.
3: For sure. Uh, the Mr. Emerson did indeed touch his knee. It's right after granddad's, uh, line about, you know, don't let a white person tell you all your business, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but he says, uh, no, let me finish, he said, touching my knee, touching my knee lightly and quickly removing his hand as I shifted my position. Very important. And then he, he it's quite a few things. If you look back at their conversation from last week, a little challenging because the conversation did get broken. But in my view, it's quite a few things. Uh, if you look at the whole course of it, that to me would suggest perhaps this is someone looking for antisexual behavior. Other folks, uh, if you have commentary, proceed. May I be heard? Red in Nevada, yes, ma'am.
7: Um, thank you for allowing me to share again. Um, I definitely uh, really appreciate the um, the last part, especially just um, it. It really is so much better than than watching um, TV because it, it. I feel like how um, Mr. Ellison um, um, wrote it it helps me to better visualize and I feel like that's something that I've been definitely trying to do better with, with reading more books. You know, when you watch TV, you really, you know, it's easy for us to then, you know, um, as uh, Mr. Kimbrell wanted, don't think, just do. So, um, definitely appreciate that. The couple of things that I, um, that I took note of from this part was the whole, the whole union uh, um meeting and just how like a visceral reaction when they heard um lucius brockway's name at first like you know uh, the invisible man he did say mister and then kind of questioning himself like okay, well maybe around these white people and i assumed that they were when i thought of the union meeting i thought of like like he was saying foreigners and he and uh, lucius described them correctly foreigners. Now these people I guess will probably think of themselves as quote unquote Americans, but like, you know, Scottish, Irish, um, you know, Europeans basically. And just thinking of thinking of it like that and then the term how the invisible man he was kinda of caught off guard by the term brother, which also, you know, I think that's that's correct. They'll catch you off guard with, you know, the terms brother and of course and, you know, um which is very interesting, the term brother in this book, but, um, uh, there was the, and just, just the whole think thing and think ism and just son of a bees and just, just, just constantly going on about that. And and, um, you know, basically taking a vote for him almost as if kind of remind me of like, you know, like a slave block, like he didn't, want to be a part of the group but they still voted and still basically gave him um, or not gave him but they allowed it an investigation to see if he really was a think or not and think to me also when I first heard it without um, looking it up because I have the Kindle version and I I really like the Kindle version of it because words that I don't know because there are some words in here that I don't know you know you could just Highlight it or, you know, touch the word and then it'll tell you. But it said um, basically the definition of a sphink was a, I thought I had it, basically a um, someone who goes against um, other people, um, goes to the authorities against other people, which kind of, um, hopefully I can find the definition really quick so that way um, I can give it a better actually be more precise, but it kind of made me think of white people, they are constantly going to the authorities for their own benefit or to, you know, of course, uh, further the system of white supremacy. Um, Okay, I think I found found it one second. So the definition that it gives, and I I, cannot, I don't know which, um, it just says dictionary, but it says that, uh, one, an unpleasant or contemptible person, in particular, a person who informs on other people to the authorities. So I definitely thought that kind of sounds like white people to me. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention was, um, reminded me of Delectable Negro, kind of how uh, Lucius Brockway was saying how he sweetened the the paint um, he said, well, he dips his finger in it and he's the one who who sweetens it and just really us trying to get away and, you know, being kind of confused, getting away from describing ourselves as food or edible or anything like that, you know, um, color, or in this case, him sweetening it. Um, and just two other things, the, the part where um, the invisible man, he was so quick to go back to uh, basically what racist, the terms racist would use to describe black people, especially after the fight, he was thinking about how his grandfather had used terms like, you know, old fashioned slave time, mammy, made handkerchief, handkerchief headed bastard. And, um, then the last thing was, uh, when Lucius was talking about the, the meet, the, um, the union and how they wanted to steal his job, he said, um, for one of us to join them meet to join the damn unions is like us, uh, is, is, I'm sorry, is like we was to take a bite of the hand of the hand of the man that teach us to bathe in a bathtub. And it kind of made me feel like maybe saying that, you know, white people have taken us out of this savagery and given us, you know, um, you know civility when that, I don't believe that's the case at all. They've stolen other melanated people's civility and termed it as their own but just just that whole part right there i thought that was definitely ingenious and i'll meet my line thank you Mm,
3: appreciate that red in nevada definitions always super important uh for fink snitch is a great synonym for fink uh, if you want an updated term, because uh, I don't really think Fink is used as frequently as much anymore. If you read that section and just imagine snitch instead of Fink, I also think it's great that he compared it in the text to uh, them saying the word nigger and how it made him feel. <laughs> the brilliance of Allison. But I think you can substitute either nigger or snitch. And yeah, <laughs> you will get a great effect for for that uh, for that section of writing. Uh, other folks, if you had commentary, line should be open. Proceed.
0: Can I be heard?
3: Yes, ma'am, uh, software developer in Wisconsin.
0: Uh, yes, sir. Thank you. Um, in that passage, uh, the Think uh, passage, well, uh, when the guy is, the fat man with the shaggy gray hair is shouting, I'd say, he says, Thinkism is born into some guys is born into some guys, just like a good eye for color is born into other guys. That's right. That's the honest scientific truth. I thought that was really interesting that it would be uh, uh, sort of contrasted or compared to a good eye for color. Um, I think that um, the invisible man or the unnamed protagonist uh, doesn't really see uh, his color per se as the other characters do. Um, And so he doesn't really have that good eye for color. You know, he sort of separates himself from all the other black people. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, Also, the passage where he's uh, shouting or where Lucius, he and Lucius are, are getting ready to fight. And he says, you were trained to accept the foolishness of such old men as this, even when you thought them clowns and fools. You were trained to pretend that you respected them and acknowledged them, acknowledged in them, excuse me, the same quality of authority and power in your world as the whites before whom they bowed and scraped and feared and loved and imitated. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, again, that anti-blackness elevating whiteness above blackness, not even seeing, you know, these older people as some as people who should be respected because they came before him just because they were not white. They were instead clowns and fools. Um, lastly, um, I, Ivy mentioned this. I, I, I believe this is what she was talking about, and she can correct me if it isn't, but I uh, that last part where the explosion occurs and he says... I, while I seemed to run swiftly up an incline, maybe I better go back to the beginning of that sentence. Um, oh, this is a long sentence. I felt the wheel resisting and tried vainly to reverse it and tried to let go and it's sticking to my palms and my fingers stiff and sticky and I turned running now, seeing the needle on one of the gauges swinging madly like a beacon gone out of control and trying to think clearly, my eyes darting here and there, through the room of tanks and machines and up the stairs so far away and hearing the clear new note arising while I seemed to run swiftly up an incline and shot forward with sudden acceleration into a wet blast of black emptiness that was somehow a bath of whiteness. This is a contrast of the blackness being this, this blast, this sort of very violent thing and it's empty and then it becomes a bath, you know, this sort of soothing thing of whiteness. And lastly, of course, the, the brilliance of Joe Morton, he really brings these characters to life. I've, I'm just amazed and astounded at um, the nuanced way he, he, he uh, creates these characters' voices and um, how he, you know, how he distinguishes the characters from one another. It's, it's really well done. But that'll meet my line.
3: Here, 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 here. Uh other folks, uh if you had comments, uh line should be open. Proceed. Other folks with a hand up have comments? Everybody satisfied? Wow. Yes, my beer. Mr. Demery Ford? Uh yes.
2: Uh, I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, but um, the old man, Mr. Brock, Mr. Brockway, um, when he was talking to the narrator, and I guess he was talking about retirement, and he said the quickest way to die is a person to retire. You know, I think that's the way the system of white supremacy wants black people to think. I mean, uh, just the word retire, you know, uh, maybe meaning not to do anything afterwards, not to mean doing anything you want to do after you retire. So uh, the John Henryism of, Uh, Mr. Brockway, you know, talking about uh, uh, people dying, you know, just because they retire. You know, that was uh, interesting. And uh, I think that the whole thing is the narrator learning who he really is, not what others appear, the image that he appeared to others or whatever, but knowing who he is within himself based upon all the experiences that he's had with uh, Dr. Bloodsoe and now Mr. Barsworth and then what's to come. It's all helping him to uh, gain some uh, clarity on who he actually is. And I think that's his quest. And at that point, then he can uh, be free.
3: I'll mute my line. Thanks, God. Appreciate that, Mr. Demry. Four. Any other listeners have commentary they wanted to share? I will share some of my notes, and then we can... Oh, did somebody have... Is that... Uh,
7: Um, yes, I just, I just had a real quick question. Um, I couldn't understand like in the first part of the reading, um, why they kept calling the the black substance that they did, that they poured into this gray or white paint dope. Um, I just thought that I I couldn't quite understand that. Maybe if anybody else maybe thought about that, um, I'll be my line. Thank you.
3: Great question. I might, that might even be one. You might have to look at, uh, an etymology dictionary to see the usage of the term dope. I'm pretty sure that still was a reference for drugs uh, in the 1950s at the time that this book was written, even though this scene is taking place in the 20s, but to kind of see what some of the the common definitions uh, for that term were like 75 years ago, 80 years ago. But yeah, any any thoughts on why they they reference the? Uh, is that just general anti-blackness drug reference? Do we think that's what it is? Or folks have thoughts around why they use the term dope to refer to the black substance that was added to the white optic white paint? Feel free to think on it. Oh, somebody have a response? Feel free to think on it. If not, I will think on it myself. And again, I will. That's one uh, I think it'd be good to check an etymology dictionary just to see the how that uh, word use has changed uh, over the years. Uh, some of the notes that I took from what we read from uh, we finished chapter 10 uh, with the second audio segment. Let's see. Lots of comparisons still to. Oh, wait a minute, I got too far back. Okay, Chapter Ten. <laughs> the when Lucius Brockway spends so much time, and he's so proud. <laughs> of his contributions to the paint. I think Red Nevada was talking about him saying he puts his finger in to sweeten the white paint. And he's talking about how he helped uh, them make the uh, slogan for the factory uh, for the paint. If it's uh, optic white, it's the right white Dr. Welsing. Uh, and they walked right to the Dr. Welsing uh, phrase uh, from there. I was thinking Dr. Welsing. And then they walked right to it. If you're white, you're right. Dr. Welsing moment explicitly uh, in the tape. And he says, that's it. That's <laughs> it. Of course, that's it. in The system uh, of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. I thought that was such a great metaphor, too, with the piece uh, of coal. But all of this, it reminded me of Minister Malcolm X uh, and many other victims of white supremacy who, uh, had a better understanding who said that a lot of times we victims as a part of our brain trashing, uh, we are so identified with whites and strive to be so much uh, like them and emulate everything that they say that we end up uh, striving to be more white than even many of the people who classified themselves as white. That's rampant, uh, I think, throughout the text and especially in this section here at the at the paint factory. Uh, next, let's see when he goes into the union meeting my goodness what uh a scene uh just all the way around i think uh him going to get a pork chop sandwich that stood out because he had uh last week when he went to the diner and the guy uh, at the diner assumed or asked him if he wanted the special which was a pork chop and he had this moment where he uh was so self-conscious like oh why did he say that? Is it because I'm a Southerner? <laughs> and then he he didn't want to get the pork chop. And then he looked over and he saw the white guy having a pork chop and he felt, you know, some type of way about that. So him going to get this pork chop sandwich, which he said tasted like acid uh, in his mouth. Dr. Kaworkian talked about that as just another uh, moment of this not being a human, almost a mechanical where you're, you're having this acid taste in your mouth or metallic uh, taste in your mouth. And so you're not even eating things that a human would eat. Uh, But I think uh, the protagonist, I think that scene. Oh, wait a minute. I lost my note again. Okay. All right. Uh, I think when he goes in to get his pork chop sandwich, which he can't even enjoy, uh, I think the anger of Ralph Ellison comes through. I think I talked about that last week. Uh, and saying that uh some people even some whites uh, have commented and said that Ralph Ellison is a hateful writer and that's the exact word that they used hateful uh I don't I wouldn't use the word hateful I would say that you can see uh the anger of a black victim of white supremacy uh in the writing of Ralph Ellison I think it comes through through the very beginning and I think it comes through crystal uh in the scene when he goes in, walks in on this uh, union man, and he's attacked, and that happens to so many of us. uh, Workplace racism, uh, where he gets accused immediately of being a fink snitch, uh, like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? He's here trying to rat us out. And they go on all these tirades and everything. He's just like, wait a minute, I'm just trying to get my lunch. They don't give him an opportunity to speak, to ask if he wants to be voted on, to to join. I cracked up laughing. The humor. That's something else that I think uh, his superb talent as a writer to be humorous at the same time that he is revealing truth about racism, white supremacy, and that he is so justifiably enraged uh, about the way that Black people, including himself, are treated in the system that he can convey all of that, I think, powerfully and at the same time frequently, I think it's just, it's extraordinary. Um, but that that entire scene when I was listening to it, a listener had said when they knew that this part was coming up, they were like, Oh, that's probably why you don't like the word brother with the scene right And I was like, No, that's not it, but that certainly would contribute. But I mean it it is irritating, uh having these racists just, oh yes, brother, what are you doing at the same time that it's over, this brother might be a think. He might be coming to to rat us out just the whole uh insincerity uh of it all. Uh let's see what else what other notes did I get from this scene. Eye uh, references, Invisible Man. I think that's something we should be paying attention to as we move through the text as well. Uh, he says, uh, "My eyes seem to ha- to to my eyes seeming to have become extremely sharp, causing each face to stand out vivid in its hostility." As his vision is improving, he is seeing flagrantly. These are enemies. These are not brothers. These are not friends. <laughs> these are whites who are racist white supremacists here and then they come right back after that when were you hired friend lots of whites calling him friend uh in chapters 9 and 10 emerson the union folks uh let's see what else what an amazing uh <laughs> bit of writing when the guy stands up and uh oh the beautiful i think uh Colin wisconsin software developer in wisconsin when she talked about that the sentence in this amazing passage where he says thinkism is born into some where whites have talked about that, where there is something in the genes, defective in the genes of black people. And then to contrast that with having a good eye for color is born into others. I think that would be racist. No one is more discerning uh, about color than racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, let's see. Also, and they come back and they reaffirm that right in the next uh, on the next page, almost in the very next paragraph, when the next white speaker stands up and says, after all, brothers, we don't want to forget that workers like him aren't so highly developed as some of us who've been in the labor movement for a long time, where they still get to convey the same message that black people uh, are primitive, ignorant. And ignoring that whites have put in all this effort to keep black people from being informed, competent, literate, even uh, ignoring all of that at the same time. Uh, oh, the rage of of Ralph Ellison right here. The paragraph where he's this is after he's like he got his pork chop sandwich and he leaves the union room where he says uh, the room roared, biting anger grew inside me. So I was not so highly developed as they. What did he mean? Were they all PhDs? I couldn't move. Too much was happening to me. It was as though by entering the room, I had automatically applied for membership, even though I had no idea that a union existed and had come up simply to get a cold pork chop sandwich. I stood trembling, afraid that they would ask me to join, but angry that so many rejected me on sight. And worst of all, I knew they were forcing me to accept things on their own terms, and I was unable to leave. I think that... Is tons of black people, whether nineteen fifty two when this book was published, two thousand eighteen June one right now, I think that is tons uh of black people that biting anger with the way uh we are terrorized all the time in particular I mean this is workplace racism, particularly uh in the context of a job um and the and I think that is Ellison, I think that is Ellison just speaking. Uh, for every single black person, including himself, maybe even him. Clearly, I think sometimes I feel like that is Ellison speaking clearly for himself. I think that might be one right there. Uh, and I think it might even be another one on the very next page or it's same, for me, it'd be the same page. Uh, a couple pages, a couple paragraphs down. My face stung. As though it had been slapped, they had made their decision without giving me a chance to speak for myself. I felt that every man present looked upon me with hostility, and though I had lived with hostility all my life, now for the first time it seemed to reach me as though I had expected more of these men than of others. Woo! Beautiful writing. I think that's Ellison speaking directly for himself, and I think that is many Many black people, maybe not in the context that we lived in Mississippi or Florida and we migrated north, warmth of other suns. We migrated north and thought that the white northern women and men would be cool and not racist. Maybe not in that context, but I think many, 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 many uh, victims of white supremacy have had expectations that maybe a certain set of whites would not be racist or would do right by us, and then we were disappointed, and the anger, the hostility, the disappointment, the rejection around all of that, and thinking that, man, I thought these were going to be down. What what does it mean to be white? Grasping that and exactly what he said, they were all looking at me with hostility. Uh, I think I can probably end there, although I do have other notes. It's lots that could be uh, said. I didn't even get to say anything uh, about the fight, the anti-blackness. I guess the last comment I'll get in the... When he says you were trained to pretend that you respected them and acknowledged them in the same quality of authority and power in your world as whites before whom they bowed and scraped and feared and loved and and, uh, imitated. And you weren't even trained to accept it when angered or spiteful or drunk with power. They came at you with a stick or strap or cane and you made no effort to strike back, but only to escape unmarked. Wow. That is so much to say in, I mean, you could probably read that three or four times and have three hours of conversation just about that one snippet. And I think that is all one sentence. Wow. And I'll even pause here because I spent a good chunk of time talking about Frantz Fanon and saying writing mammoth sentences that are like more than 50 words is generally considered a no-no uh, because they're difficult to process and they're so long. That sentence is really long and I understand it. It's one that I have to think on, not because what the hell is he saying, which is what I was thinking most of the time with Frantz Fanon with this. It's wow. I could ponder on that for a long period of time. My initial thought was just it reminded me a lot of Neely Fuller Jr. And why he says we do not qualify as men and women. And excuse me, he talks about how uh, in many instances, right? Whites show us, they demonstrate that we do not qualify for men and women. And, you know, we get embarrassed or how we feel about it, upset, dis- uh, disappointed, sad, whatever it is. Uh, but recognizing that and being frustrated with ourselves uh, or others and lying to ourselves uh, about the fact that we are men, women, lying to ourselves that, yes, I married a woman or I married. A man, I think that is exactly what is being conveyed in that paragraph there, where you are pretending that you respect people that you see being subject to racism, white supremacy, uh, and seeing what they have to do. We just talked about that with the hate you give, where the police came and threw Star's dad on the ground. Same thing that he's talking about in the text right here, seeing that, and you know, this is not a man, this is not a woman, this is a victim of white supremacy. And I got to pretend. That, yes, this is the man of the house. I got to pretend that that's the case when I know that is not. So even when I'm pretending that I am the man of the house or the woman of the house or whatever it is, that ain't so in the system of white supremacy. If you are classified as not white, what I could just read that one more time and see if anybody has any thoughts just on that uh, paragraph alone, I think is extraordinary. I think uh, at least one person did mention it, but you were trained to pretend that you respected them. And acknowledge them in the same quality of authority and power in your world as the whites before whom they bowed and scraped and feared and loved and imitated. And you were even trained to accept it when angered or spiteful or drunk with power, they came at you with a stick or strap or cane and you made no effort to strike back, but only to escape unmarked. Wow. Anybody have any thoughts they want to get on that before we wrap up?
0: I did guess if I can get one in. Yes um. It made me think of the um guest you had on that was saying that we should not hit our children. And I thought that was a great passage too, and it also made me think that the all of the hurt and the pain and the the and the degradation that our older people take from racism, white supremacy, and then they might, you know, come at us because we're smaller versions of them, and then they might try to take it out on us, and I, I think stuff like that does go on, unfortunately.
3: Thanks. Reflexive response to white supremacy. Any other concluding thoughts folks want to get in on that passage? Have you heard? Yes ma'am.
7: I I like the, I definitely appreciate that, that passage as well, but just like you were saying was that, you know, when we think of them as clowns and fools, but it's kind of like, you know, who taught us to think of these older people as clowns or fools, or clowns and or fools, so it's, you know, it's still kind of we're trained to, you know, still respect them at all costs, and I know that was definitely something that I was trained to do as well, but still also thinking that, you know, they're not, like, like you said, these people, these are the same people who aren't willing to aggressively um, attack racists but they will aggressively attack you or they will even, I remember just even thinking about the whole Lucius um, Brockway part where he was like, no, it's Mr. Brockway. And, and just seeing how, you know, I actually had that same thought of uh, when there was like an older black female who said, no, I am Miss such and such. And thinking, you know, is this how you address white children? So definitely can um, relate to that, that passage, unfortunately, at times. And I'll
3: meet my line. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that, Red in Nevada. Any, any other thoughts on that? Uh, he ha- I felt like the entire book is a mic drop. Uh, I think that's the, the real reason that he did not write another book. What else is there to write? But I feel like he has a mic drop about every other paragraph. It's just like, wow, that is. Pff. Any other uh, thoughts on this passage? folks satisfied right on uh he mentioned tar baby later in the book uh i think tony morrison that's one of her books as well my i think that was even recommended for a cow's book that'd be the first time that i think we have a repeat author uh in the book club for the cows anyway we are a little over time but Invisible man. What can I say? More could have been said. I didn't even read all of my notes. Uh, So we'll pick up next week. Thankfully, we did end uh, chapter 10. So we'll pick up next week. We'll be at the very beginning of chapter 11. We are actually making extraordinary time uh, in the book. I did not think we'd be moving that quickly. We are almost at the halfway point. That is amazing. Anywho, so next Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, we'll be here uh, tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific for the compensatory call in. We'll catch up on what went down over the last uh, seven days. Uh, tune in if you have counter racist suggestions, thoughts, observations. We'll be looking forward. Counter racist T-shirt. Uh, please treat me like I am a white person. Uh, you can email Trav shirt at Gmail dot com. Order should be going in beginning of the week cow's shirt at gmail.com $25 per shirt that includes shipping and handling drop him a line and he will hook you up Uh, much obliged to all the folks uh, for participating hope there were no uh, tech issues for the live participants or minimal my apologies for the folks uh, who had issues will hopefully not have that as a recurring problem uh, and the archives should be okay I'll double check that as soon as we end Uh, we'll be here tomorrow as I said Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, I don't think uh, being intoxicated is going to help us solve the problem. Uh, Dr. Welsing, many of the other folks that we esteem, they would strongly encourage that we take excellent care of our brain computers so that we can think clearly and come up with solutions, new concepts to get this problem solved immediately. That said, if you're going to be out and about in a vehicle this weekend, uh, not only do we want to be sober, let's make sure we are buckled up. Uh, let's do everything we possibly can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with Ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga,
2: you so brainwashed.
3: I'm a victim, brother. Victor.
2: Goodbye. My victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up.
8: The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.
1: <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.